good afternoon, everyone. Um, on behalf of the Center for the Study of Religion, I want to welcome you and thank you all for being here. The theme of today's symposium, What is Prayer?, probably demands some explanation. And in some ways, it's an audacious question. What is prayer? After all, just about everyone prays, at least they claim to in polls and surveys. And it's common to say to someone, you are in my thoughts and prayers, whatever that means. Presidents routinely say, God bless America, which I suppose is a kind of prayer. And of course, none of this is unique to America. Prayers exist in all religions and in all societies. So if it is audacious to ask what prayer is, it's even more audacious to think that we can answer that question. And yet, this is a question that seems necessary to ask. Something so common and yet so varied and often ill-defined requires scrutiny. Over the past two years, about a dozen of us here on campus have been uh, meeting. We've been having a weekly seminar, and we've been looking at topics as diverse as prayers in hospitals uh, in the United States to prayerful poetry in Soviet Russia. And we have hosted some public events prior to this one, a public lecture uh, by cognitive anthropologist Pascal Boyer, who talked about rituals and how they structure our thoughts and why they persist. Nicholas Wolterstorff, the Yale philosopher, gave a public lecture in which he considered for us what it could possibly mean to say that God talks back to us. And last fall, we hosted a symposium on neuroscience and religion. Some of you were here for that. The panelists, both neuroscientists and from religious studies, discussed research on the brains of people who meditate a lot and how that may or may not be related to religion. So all of that, as it were, provided a backdrop for today's symposium. Today we look to scholars in religion and theology, in religious studies, in history and the humanities, in short to scholars who actually know something about the topic. And we've asked them to share their thoughts about the historical, cultural, social and religious aspects of prayer. Our four speakers individually and collectively bring a wealth of knowledge. And I'm going to introduce all of our speakers here at the start and uh, then ask them to uh, each to speak in turn. So to begin, Sister Mary Margaret Funk comes to us from Our Lady of Grace Monastery in Beech Grove, Indiana, where she has served as prioress and since 1994 has been extensively involved in interreligious dialogue, working personally with the Dalai Lama, among others, and leading formal religious dialogues with Christian, Hindu, Zen Buddhist, Muslim, and other religious traditions. She lectures widely and also somehow manages to find time to be a prolific writer, including Islam Is, published in 2003, and her trilogy of books, Thoughts Matter, published in 1998, Tools Matter in 2002, 
and most recently in 2005, Humility Matters. Next, David Hall brings the perspective of a historian to the panel. He is Bartlett Professor of New England Church History at Harvard Divinity School, where he teaches on, much broader to- on such broader topics as American religious history, liberal Protestantism, and the history of Christianity. He is the general editor of a large collaborative multi-volume project on the history of the book, which involves some Princeton faculty, and he is the author of numerous books of his own, including The Faithful Shepherd, A History of the New England Ministry, and one of my favorites, Worlds of Wonder, Days of Judgment, Popular Religious Belief in Early New England. Continuing alphabetically, the next speaker will be our own Al Robito. Al is the Henry W. Putnam Professor of Religion here at Princeton in the Religion Department. And he teaches courses on American religious history, African-American religion, Catholic history, and lots of other interesting things, including seminars on religion and literature, religion and migration, and spiritual autobiography and spiritual exercises. He has roots in the Catholic tradition and extensive involvement in the Orthodox tradition more recently. Professor Rabito is the author of numerous articles and books, including Slave Religion, African American Religion, Canaan Land, A Sorrowful Joy, and A Fire in the Bones. And finally, Carol Zaleski comes to us today from Smith College, where she is professor of world religions and also teaches philosophy of religion, psychology of religion, the Catholic philosophical tradition, and a course on William James. She is the author of The Life of the World to Come, Other World Journeys, Accounts of Near-Death Experience in Medieval and Modern Times, and of particular interest to today's topic, the co-author with Philip Seleski of Prayer, a History. She also has a forthcoming volume entitled The Book of Hell and is writing a book about monasticism and is engaged in a study of the Inklings Circle at Oxford, which included C.S. Lewis, Tolkien, and Charles Williams. So that's our lineup for today. We've asked each of the panelists to speak for about 15 minutes, uh, and then as we proceed, uh, there will be some time for discussion. Uh, an intermission with some refreshments, and time for further discussion. So without, without further ado, Sister Mary Margaret Funk. Thank you, Dr. Ruth Now, It's my pleasure to be here at Princeton University. Um, I never know when I wake up in the morning. I live with about 70 nuns, and they don't have a clue what I do. (laughs) And when I get home, they'll say, how was it? And I'll say, just great. (laughs) So today, though, I'd like to introduce to you, not about prayer, but someone who taught me how to pray. And it's a saint from the Catholic tradition that many of you know about. But from a point of view of uh, East-West Dialogue, I feel like she was a revelation to me because in the Roman Catholic rite of the Christian tradition, we were taught how to pray, that we should pray, and what to say, but we didn't know what we were doing when we did it. 
we also did not have a practice of prayer except to be a practicing Catholic. So it was just refreshing when I got into East-West Dialogue to see the nature and the uh, discipline of a practice. And then, of course, I went back to my own Christian tradition and found that we, too, had many saints that told us how to practice as well as imitated. we could imitate them in their practice. Um, so I'm bringing today to you uh, Therese of Lisieux, who was uh, you know, just kind of a... Uh, unknown person that entered the Carmelite Monastery in the late 19th century. She died at the age of 24, and as one of her sisters said, uh, what will we ever say about her? She did nothing. It's extraordinary. Uh, but her, she wrote only one book, uh, The Story of a Soul. This particular edition, the superior edited it and made 7,000 changes. Uh, so I would recommend the critical edition. <laughs> Um, but she was a brilliant, uh, young, precocious woman, and she taught a new doctrine, a new way of prayer, which she entitled The Little Way, The Little Way. And I'd like to give you the structure of it, the practices of it, and an example of it in these few minutes, and see if it doesn't uh, kind of lead off our discussion here about what is prayer. She... Um, talks about prayer as, for me, as simply raising of the heart, a simple glance towards heaven, an expression of love and gratitude in the midst of trial, as well as in the times of joy. In a word, it is something noble and supernatural, expanding my soul and uniting it with God. Now, that, that's how she defines prayer. But she talks about... Um, she wants to teach others how to pray. And she, this little way is not through saying prayers. She does it through uh, inclination of the heart, a gesture of, like the idea of a flower. You lift up a flower, and on that flower is your emotion, your feelings, your, your suffering. And that becomes your prayer. And you lift it up to God in union with our Lord's sacrifice on the cross, and it becomes redemptive suffering and also substitutive suffering. Now, obviously, I'm going very quickly here, but it's very profound here. Notice, she no longer says prayers. She takes her ordinary consciousness, lifts up an inkling, a thought, a feeling, an emotion, a depression, a vainglory, and offers it like a flower to God, and then makes the mental intention that this suffering is redemptive because it's in union, her faith, with Christ Jesus. And then she, like a child, audaciously says, I want this suffering to go to merit, through your merits, so that someone else does not have to suffer. I taught this to some physicians in uh, St. Vincent's Hospital recently, and they, uh, we had plenty of time. We had five hours and uh, they saw, thought her uh, practice of the little way was the most advanced uh, notion of, of uh, pain management that they had ever heard of. And notice how she takes her suffering, doesn't deny it, no repression. She lifts it up uh, in faith that it has meaning, it has significance, and then she offers it for the sake of someone else. 
And she also doesn't seek any extraordinary means. She just takes her own life, her own consciousness. And she also doesn't have any regrets or any uh, depression about, oh, if only, or no self-talk. There's no vacation from this, she says. She just does it all the time. One night when she was dying, the infirmarian found her awake, gazing towards heaven. What are you doing? You ought to try to sleep. I can't, sister. I'm suffering too much for that. So I pray. Well, what do you say to Jesus, said the infirmarian. Nothing. I just love him. She even found in her sufferings a proof of God's goodness. How very good God must be, she said, to give me strength to bear all that I endure. Now, this little way uh, is practiced by many people throughout the world, and they can give you many testimonies. And I have an example of my own practice that I'll do in you know just a few minutes. But let me give you a couple of the details about this practice. One is uh, Therese was a child whose mother died when she was four years old, and she went into a profound funk, no pun intended, and really it wasn't until she was about 13 that she came out of it through kind of a mystical experience. Um, but she uh, was neurotic. She had a nervous breakdown. She could not even go to school. She had to be homeschooled. She was overly sensitive. She had separation anxiety. She had unbelievable uh, symptoms of mental illness, emotional illness, physical illness. And the truth of it is she never really transcended it. She never really got well. This is not a wellness model. The little way is to take your ordinary consciousness with your ordinary condition, wherever you find it, whatever you find it, and, and uh, use it as your prayer. That is prayer in faith, that God has given you the grace to endure it, to suffer, and to sacrifice. The notion of sacrifice is a grace, but once given, it is more satisfying than uh, self-centeredness. So it's a shift from self to God. It's that fourth renunciation that John Cashin talks about, that we really are happiest when we can really be for others, when we can turn away from our own ego and our own agenda and be there for someone who needs us. And somehow it turns heaps back upon us and gives us the joy that is unparalleled in satisfaction. So um, the characteristics of this is to take your ordinary consciousness, uh, no matter how little, no matter how great, but mostly little, and you just raise it up like a little flower. And she says of herself, she wants to be unpeddled, unpeddled in heaven. And uh, she wrote a poem. She wrote 52 poems and uh, nothing outstanding. She was pretty ordinary as a writer, really. And uh, the superior said, um, uh, Therese, I hope when you get to heaven, you write a fifth stanza talking about re being repetaled in heaven and fully flowered. And Therese says to her superior, if the good mother wants that written, she should write it herself. <laughs> I intend to be unpeddled in heaven. I intend to just continue doing this. So the second big teaching is, should some Christian or in any tradition take upon this practice and frankly with a little effort I could find this practice probably, in fact I know in Hindu and Buddhist tradition and Sufi traditions uh, should anyone take this practice, she comes with it she's like a bodhisattva and I have story after story of people that will come up after a teaching on this and say, you know I, I, 
I changed and I dedicated my life to the little flower and this is what has happened. And uh, It's unbelievable. I gave a retreat at Gethsemane a year ago and the abbot said, uh, I'd asked the monks, how many of you are here for Thomas Merton, some connection? And oh, about 10 raised their hands. How many of you knew Thomas Merton? About 30 raised their hands. And I saw that I went on and then the abbot said, well, ask the next question. I said, well, what is it? How many are here because of St. Therese? About half of them raised their hands. You know, just some influence she had on their lives. So she's a bodhisattva. She's a bodhisattva. Now, to keep this short, I'm going to give you an example that I wrote up after I had a very bad experience. So I thought, you know, the proof of this is doing it yourself, you know. So this happened um, to me. Uh, this is a story after, let's see, okay. Uh, me at a Lady of Grace Monastery. Less this practice the little way be just one more theory about prayer. Let me provide an example from life here at the monastery. It's uh, Beach Grove is an imburb. I don't know if that's such a word. Is there a word like that? It's inside the Beltway of Indianapolis. Um, today is the anniversary of the invasion of Iraq. Beach Grove is having a vigil, but it seems better to me if we have one here along with Vespers. So I went to the prioress who was not home, then to the presider who said, go to the liturgical director. I went to the liturgical director who said, no. <laughs> it was a feast of St. Joseph. And then we had bell practice after Vespers, and that makes too long of an evening. Now, in fairness to my community, we do pray three hours a day. So for me to come and say, I want another hour of prayer, you know, well, but anyway. Um, so I felt my anger rising and asked if at least we could have a petition on ending this war incorporated into today's Vespers. I realized that in a monastery I should have started planning earlier and that the herarium is set and sealed. But we did have a vigil four years ago to pray for peace now that it's setting. But let me factor through this, the real incident, the little ways of prayer. Okay, I did not get my ego idea, idea, my idea met. I felt angry. I expressed my anger to Sister Harriet, but then apologized as she was just expressing her view. I felt badly on several counts. No vigil, my anger expressed, causing dissension around the very issue of peace. <laughs> I now offer my feelings about this situation, all of them, and refrain from analysis. I've, the feelings are the prayer for peace. I feel weak, powerless, even over my own emotions as to how to stop this war. I take those very feelings and send them to our Lord as little flowers and ask them to be the prayer for peace. I offer my sad, angry feelings about the war and my causing stress around here, trying to initiate a vigil at such a late date as my prayer for peace. And I exchange my emotions as substitution to those who are suffering in this war. I call on St. Therese to intercede for me on behalf of this prayer so that my energies of anger are transmuted into prayer for those who are victims of this war. I offer these flowers, these emotions, as many times as they rise and as many times as I feel them. It feels like a steady chant of offering. The little way then becomes a prayer. I refrain from any self-centered thoughts about how to justify my anger or to take parts of the war and restart my anger. In other words, if I go up the thought of the war, the anger goes up. So I just offer my feelings about the war as those little flowers. I was being unpeddled. I use this, little, this way of being little as a prayer of sacrifice, knowing in faith that God hears my prayer. 
In faith, I know that my practice of the little way really is more effective than if I had gotten a large vigil service planned and executed to our usual perfection of six-part harmony. God knows me better than I know myself. So in conclusion, the little way is a practice that becomes prayer when made into one's way of life. Prayer is lifting up one's heart to God. Thank you. When I uh, knew who else was speaking and we had some sharing of papers ahead of time, I thought to myself, I should have prayed prayed this. I realized I made a fundamental error here, namely that I would not have to follow the good sister. <laughs> but um, it's interesting to hear about uh, the monks at Gethsemane because uh, I do happen to wonder from country church to country church in France, not to pray, but simply as a tourist. I've seen a lot of these churches, and uh, some of you may know that St. Therese, statues of her have her placed. They're really there only with the Virgin and St. Therese now in these country churches. Those are, the, those are the only active statues all across France. It's quite astonishing her place in contemporary French Catholic life. So I add that to testimony to your own testimony here. What is prayer? I'm going to engage in an act of translation, for me a necessary act of translation, at least at the outset, and to ask really what is the history of prayer, and I wish I had uh, availed myself of reading uh, the Zaleski book here, uh, so my history may not be well informed. I'm interested in the history of prayer as a historian of Christianity, and methodologically as someone interested in identifying and understanding the tensions that are sustained within Christianity as religion and culture. Actually, actually Professor Zaleski is going to speak of polarities here in a moment, and my tensions are her polarities or vice versa. So you will hear me then enumerate uh, certain tensions uh, uh, in what follows. Prayer is a practice, and like any Christian practice or religious practice, it exists in historical time. It exists in history. It partakes of the historical, which is to say that it's affected by wider contexts. What prayer meant to liberal Protestants, American Protestants in the late 19th century, is not what it meant to Martin Luther, and what Luther understood by prayer differed from what was said by Catholic theologians of the Counter-Reformation. This is obvious, and an all-too-obvious answer to the question, what is prayer, would therefore be to say, this is what Luther thought prayer was, or perhaps this is what Luther's prayer practice was, and so on ad infinitum. A somewhat different way of approaching the question would be to remark that prayer as a practice encompasses a repertory of forms and meanings. 
And if you will allow me a profane story, not very profane, but I'm thinking dialectically here, <laughs> a story I take from a mid-19th century memoir as a version of Yankee humor. The story goes this way. One morning, a widow in Vermont <clears throat> who owned a prosperous farm asked her head workman to lead the daily routine of morning prayer for family and servants. I have to remind you what my point is. My point is here's a repertory. The foreman did so reluctantly, but eventually in a low, troubled voice began. He had never prayed, at least not in public, but he had heard many prayers and possessed a retentive memory. After getting over the first hesitancy, he soon became fluent and taking passages here and there from the various petitions he had heard, Presbyterian, Methodist, Universalist, Episcopalian, he went on with great eloquence, gradually elevating his tone and accelerating his delivery. The widow Bennett bore it for about half an hour. But at last, as the precious time was slipping away, she lost her patience and sprang to her feet. Placing herself directly in front of the speaker, she exclaimed, Ward, what do you mean? As if suddenly relieved from a nightmare, he exclaimed, Oh, dear ma'am, I'm much obliged to you, for I couldn't contrive to wind off. <laughs> the benefits of understanding prayer as practice and in turn as repertory is that it allows, allows us to acknowledge continuity as well as change in the history of prayer. That is, the history of Christianity is incomprehensible without an awareness of continuity, or as many 19th century evangelicals like to say, of the faith once delivered to the saints. Yet however, yet however great the pertinence of certain forms and meanings and their persistence over time, it is also the case that those forms and meanings don't exist abstractly. Continuity itself is historically inflected. Consider, for example, a framework of meaning that may seem an extreme version of anti-continuity, although put forward in the name of the faith once delivered to the saints, namely the argument or the resurgence of Christian primitivism in the 16th and 17th centuries in the context of the Protestant Reformation. Christian primitivism is the argument that Christianity once existed in a pure form, namely in the first two or three centuries, usually pre-Constantine, and that this Christianity has become corrupted in the course of the centuries. Uh, Professor Rabateau will dispute this uh, argument here eventually. Uh, the Christianity has become corrupted in the course of the centuries by what primitivists call human inventions, and that the task of the faithful Christian is to return, to restore that primitive perfection. So with regard to prayer, the 16th century reformers evoked this model of thinking, this model of historical time, as the reason for discarding repetitive prayer, repetition in prayer. Luther declared repetition is not real prayer. And the Elizabethan Protestant martyr John Greenwood, whom I invoke because he was an ancestor of mine, was a primitivist to the end of his fingers, as the French would say, insisting that Christians should not routinely pray the Lord's Prayer on the grounds that all set prayer distorted the free movement of the Holy Spirit. 
it so irritated Queen Elizabeth that she had him executed. <laughs> but fortunately, not before he had had children. <laughs> Luther's comment that repetitive prayer is not real prayer reminds us of another historical dimension of prayer, its persistent association with moments of anxiety about the well-being of Christianity, or we could say other forms of religion as well. With the history of the Jews as narrated in the Hebrew Bible always as a model, Christian communities and Christian leaders throughout the centuries have called upon the faithful to return to prayer as a means of restoring vitality to their religion. Or they have insisted that prayer, how it is performed, how it is understood, how it is practiced, serves as a measure of religion. Prove that prayer is of no use, a late 19th century American declared, and you have, and you shatter the Christian religion. This, by the way, is the statement made in the context of the so-called prayer gauge controversy of the 1870s when the English scientist John Tyndall proposed that there be a quote-unquote scientific test of the power of prayer. And a contemporary American evangelical writing in the early 1990s declares that renewal of evangelical Christianity is unlikely to happen if Americans are not given instruction in prayer and opportunities to deepen their prayer life, immediately adding the imperative that a more meditative style of prayer is the starting point for any revitalization of the churches, that is, ruling out some forms of prayer and foregrounding others. Or consider the role of prayer in healing movements in the course of the past two centuries, healing movements, be it the one associated with Lourdes in France or Keswick or Christian science, always understood and undertaken as a form of resistance to perceived skepticism or materialism or naturalism, things that are anti-religious, prayer then becomes a way of restoring or renewing, reinvigorating the religious. And so also in the mid-18th century, there's an event known to, especially to evangelical historians, historians of evangelicalism, the project arising first in Scotland and then endorsed strongly in this country by Jonathan Edwards of an international concert of prayer. This emerged in the context of anxieties about the fate of true religion at a time of skepticism, lackness, laxness, and doctrinal controversy. My point is a simple one, that the practice of prayer seems constantly to be bounded by criticism that this practice is not being carried out in the right manner, accompanied by assertions that it must be renewed and recast in light of a particular ideal of de or definition of good prayer and therefore good religion. So one way of answering the question then, what is prayer, is to follow this path and we come to the question, what is good religion? And out of that, answers to that question, emerges certain kinds of answers to the question, what is prayer? I can be precise, or historians can be precise, about a few of the challenges that occur when the question is posed not what is prayer, 
But what is good prayer, that is, as, as an historian, I can answer these questions. The primitivists have already alerted us to one of these challenges, the possibility that set prayer or routinely repeated prayer is not authentic prayer. For others, the difference between good or legitimate prayer or bad or merely empty or meaningless prayer is connected with the spiritual condition of the person or persons who offer these petitions. That is, are these persons sincere, praying from the heart, qualities that would be signified outwardly, presumably in some embodied form, uh, perhaps visible to others, but that, of course, ultimately lead us back to that other intangible, namely the nature of religious experience as something encountered or enacted uh, inwardly. But good experience, inadequate experience, or as the Puritans would say, the formalist or the hypocrite versus the person who is sincere. Throughout the Christian tradition, it seems to me, prayer as a practice has usually been associated with faith, but in ways that themselves in the way that itself becomes divisive and exclusionary, so many adjectives recur. I've already used the adjective sincere. Think of the adjective true or lively that recur again and again and again in accounts of prayer. These adjectives and the problems to which they point all relate to the place of prayer within the larger field of devotion, of devotional practice. And here again, there are a series of tensions that emerge when we turn to the history of prayer as devotion. One concerns space. In some accounts of authentic prayer or good prayer, the only legitimate space to pray is a private space. In the 17th century, people retired to a space called the closet, not our closet, but a, but a sequestered space. So often, too, in other religious settings, people retire to the outskirts of, of, a, of a town, a village, a city, to find a place outside the ordinary realm by themselves to pray, as though space was the key criterion of what constituted real prayer or even real religion. And then, of course, there's the other possibilities for praying collectively in the context of specific institutions. There's also the question of time, space and time. Some versions of devotion and some versions of prayer imagine that time has to be significantly, significantly reshaped. I cite here the rule of St. Benedict. But as time itself has changed for us in modern, the modern era, so has the time of prayer. I was told when I was asking for help to write this by someone who knows more than I do about contemporary evangelicalism, that some decades ago, the common attitude among evangelicals, American evangelicals, was to insist that the faithful Christian practice a morning watch. The point here being that there's a kind of freshness about that first moment of the day, an ideal time for prayer. But then this person said, well, that's disappeared. Nobody has time anymore for the morning watch. And indeed, if we can trust the Gallup interviews of Americans taken in the 1990s on their prayer practices, the most common form of prayer practice is to do it quickly, briefly, and at any 
possible moment. There's no set time any longer. And I'm told that indeed evangelicals have given up the hope of establishing a fixed time for prayer, accommodating themselves, as it were, to the pressures on time that seem so characteristic of our contemporary culture. And then there's another tension, and that is between prayer done collectively by lots of people or done by a singular individual. I referred already to the concert of prayer of the mid-18th century, which basically was premised on the assumption that the more people prayed, the more they prayed in unison, the better. I remember from my college days in the 1950s that there was a Boston radio station, a Catholic station, which did nothing but repeat the rosary. That's all that happened, 24 hours a day, was the rosary repeated. As a Protestant, I thought this was truly bizarre. (laughs) But I report it to you here now as simply a powerful example of the notion that more, more matters. On the other hand, from the earliest days of Christianity to the present, it has been assumed that certain individuals had a distinctive capacity. Statues of the Virgin in France carry the inscription underneath. Some of them do not all pray for us. You, You petition the Virgin to pray for you on the assumption that she is the intercessory above all others whose prayer will be effective. I want to turn now to uh, 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 a modestly uh, theological uh, uh, versions of this talk. I happened the other day to come across a copy of Somerset Maugham's novel of human bondage that I had last read when I was 14 years old. And uh, actually, it was in a French bed and breakfast of all places. And uh, opened it up and discovered that its hero, uh, whose name is Philip, and who was born with a deformed leg, a club foot, at the age of nine or ten, living with his godfather, who was a rather uh, inadequate Anglican priest, uh, read in the Bible, he was reading the Bible, he read the passage that says, faith can move mountains. And so he says to his godfather, is this true? Will faith move mountains? And his godfather says, oh, yes, faith will move mountains. So little Philip prays that he will wake up some morning and no longer have his club foot. And he prays, he sets a date. He's going to pray so many times, and then on March X, he'll wake up and his club foot will be gone. Perhaps I shouldn't give away the sequel here, uh, but it reminds me of a theological question of prayer as as situated in the midst of a complicated theological question, namely that on the one hand, God is silent, And Philip finds God to be silent, unspeaking. And that led me in my own thinking to a passage in Harriet Beecher Stowe's Uncle Tom's Cabin, where Tom, who's just been sold off into slavery, or sold south, rather, and is going to enter into the dark nightmare of, of the worst form of southern slavery, is on a steamboat going south and witnesses a young woman commit suicide because her child has been torn from her. She's also a slave. Her child's been torn from her. And Tom looks up at the heavens, and the heavens say nothing to him. They're absolutely silent. And yet prayer for Tom in in Philip's unsuccessful venture with his leg 
prayerful Tom, who is a prayerful Christian, is nonetheless a way of hearing and speaking. So theologically, prayer seems to me situated in an extraordinary space theologically between what we can't hear, what isn't given to us to hear, and yet what is sometimes given to us to hear. And I take it to be that was partly what you were speaking about a few minutes ago. Prayer is also situated in relation to history. And as I was thinking again about references that I could bring forward here, I thought of Lincoln's uh, statement in 1865 in the second inaugural address, where he says that the Southerners prayed with just as much fervency as the Northerners. Both sides prayed with exactly the same fervency and to the same God, he remarks. And he himself is willing to concede the utter inscrutability of divine providence. But of course, Christians expect more of providence. They expect more of prayer to give them answers. Let me conclude by an allusion to this history of the book field in which I sometimes work. Quite some years ago, we had a conference on the history of the book, and at one point in the middle of that conference, someone said, well, you know, we're talking about the wrong thing. We should be a history of communication. History of the book is really a clumsy expression. Let's call it the history of communication, which is not actually a term that, that stuck. And then someone said, if we were writing a history of communication, would prayer be part of that history? To which the answer was general laughter. Prayers are uttered. Prayers are indeed a practice. But who, if anyone, hears those prayers is a question that ultimately, I think, is a matter of faith. Thank you. Good afternoon. I'd like to uh, <clears throat> address you this uh, afternoon about a tradition of prayer. It's called prayer <clears throat> of the heart. And prayer of the heart is an ancient tradition within Eastern Orthodox Christianity. It's perhaps most familiar to many people as the Jesus prayer introduced to many in the contemporary West through references in J.D. Salinger's novel, uh, Franny and Zoe. How many of you remember Franny and Zoe? <laughs> ah, a few. Well, those of you who don't remember it, there's uh, an extended scene in the first part of the novel in which Franny is uh, having um, a desultory uh, lunch with a, a young man whose interest in her is, uh, shall we say, not spiritual. And um, in the course of the lunch, uh, she makes reference to a book that had been assigned to her in a religion class that she was taking in college called The Way of the Pilgrim. And she talks a little bit about this book and the spiritual insight from the book. And in the process of the conversation, which degenerates uh, over the space of the lunch, um, she gets up first and is, uh, is sick from a martini too rapidly uh, consumed. And then later on, the sickness seems to be much more, uh, much deeper, more profound than that caused by the martini. And she uh, goes into 
the women's room and, and she faints. Uh, and as she faints, uh, she's muttering the words of the, of the Jesus prayer. At any rate, uh, Franny and Zoe gave uh, an unusual notice to uh, the book that she was reading, The Way of a Pilgrim, which is a Russian spiritual uh, classic um, in which the uh, anonymous uh, author, supposedly the pilgrim, uh, travels uh, throughout Russia and uh, meets uh, a starrets who instructs him finally in how to obey St. Paul's words, pray without ceasing, from the uh, first epistle of Thessalonians. It teaches him the Jesus prayer, and he begins to say this prayer over and over and over again. And he actually buys, uh, buys a book uh, which uh, has collections of texts about the saying of uh, the prayer of the heart, which he carries with him. It's basically his only possession. Um, so this way of the pilgrim uh, became uh, a classic and remains a classic, read in translation by many people uh, still today. The book that the pilgrim was carrying was a Slavic translation of a Greek text called the Philokalia, which was a compendium of texts written between the 4th and 15th centuries by spiritual masters of the Orthodox Christian tradition. It was compiled in the 18th century by two uh, monks, one from Mount Athos and one from Corinth. And it was first published in Venice in 1782. It then was translated uh, by Paisi Velchowski, a Russian monk, and he translated it into Slavonic. Later on, it was translated into Russian. And the Philokalia and its various translations has remained a kind of compendium, uh, a synthesis of centuries of history, centuries of, of instruction and, and opinion, a living tradition passed on by uh, a succession of elders about the prayer of the heart and its significance for the Christian life. In its present form, the prayer, the Jesus prayer, is very simply, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me. Uh, sometimes added, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. The prayer is traceable in that form to the 6th century, but the tradition of frequently repeating a short ejaculatory prayer goes back to the 4th century practice of the desert fathers and mothers in a variety of phrases, such as, God, come to my assistance, O Lord, make haste to help me, or other short verses taken from the book of Psalms. In turn, these desert ascetics looked back to biblical precedents. God, be merciful to me, a sinner, the humble lament of the publican, contrasted with the boastful prayer of the Pharisee, Lord, I thank you that I'm not like other men. I fast and pray daily seven times. Um, you, know, you know that parable from the Gospel of Luke. And justifying the technique of frequent repetition, they appeal to St. Paul's injunction that later on would motivate the, uh, the pilgrim to pray without ceasing. Trying to obey the apostles' command, the early monks and nuns developed gradually a theory and practice of prayer 
not just as an act, but as a constant state in which work, breath, the beating of the heart, and life itself became uh, a prayer. Just to quote um, St. Nicodemus of the Holy Mountain, one of the composers or collectors of the Philokalia, when the apostle commanded us pray without ceasing, he meant that we must pray inwardly with our intellect. And this is something that we can always do. For when we are engaged in manual labor and when we walk or sit down, when we eat and when we drink, we can always pray with our intellect and practice, inner prayer, true prayer, pleasing to God. Let us work with our body and pray with our soul. Let our outer self perform physical work and let the inner self be consecrated wholly and completely to the service of God. And never flag in the spiritual work of inner prayer. Put it, to put it more simply, your life, as St. Basil the Great said, becomes one continuous, uninterrupted prayer. These early developers of the prayer of the heart took heed of the advice given to a desert father named Abba Arsenius, who at one point was an official in the Byzantine court. And as he was going about his duties, he heard a voice saying, Arsenios, flee, dwell alone, and keep silent. To flee the world, to live in solitude, and to rest in silence formed the classic ideal of the tradition that came to be called hesychasm, from the Greek word hezekia, quiet, rest, stillness. For the hesychists, the continuous repetition of a simple prayer served not only to praise God and not only to express repentance for one's sins, but also and especially provided a way to move the mind to consciousness of the presence of God in the heart, hence the title prayer of the heart. Now, the heart in this tradition does not mean simply the physical heart, but much more importantly, the symbolic heart, the center of the human person. They did not visualize the heart as a pump circulating the blood, but as an empty vessel of space and air, or a place of wide pastures and prairies, or as a space of unfathomable depths, or as the gateway to heaven, or as the place where Christ sits enthroned within your inner being. They believed that God dwells in the innermost and secret sanctuary of the heart. As Bishop Callistus Ware observes, the heart in the Hezekiah tradition has a double significance for the spiritual life. It is both the center of the human being and the point of meeting between the human being and God. For those of you who know something about Thomas Merton, it's similar to his notion of la point vierge, the, the virginal point where our being meets God's being. The aim, then, of prayer of the heart, as succinctly expressed by a 19th century Russian bishop, St. Theophon the Recluse, the aim is to stand before God with the mind in the heart and to go on standing before him unceasingly day and night until the end of life. Prayer of the heart, then, is above all a prayer of presence in profound attention and continuous awareness of the presence of God, calling forth an attitude of wakeful silence, 
listening for God to speak. Repeatedly, the emphasis of this prayer tradition is on silence. When you pray, you yourself must be silent. You yourself must be silent. Let prayer speak. Whereas a commonly used Orthodox morning prayer says, teach us to pray, pray you yourself in us. The Hezekast cultivates an attitude of inner stillness so that another, with a capital A, speaks within him. It may seem paradoxical to expect that the continuous repetition of the prayer, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy upon me, a sinner, or one of its variants will lead to silence. But a moment's reflection, especially if you've ever tried to meditate, unravels the paradox. The ever-busy activity of the discursive reason, thoughts, fantasies, memories, obsessions, worries, contradict our every effort to clear our minds and to center our consciousness upon silence. It is like the buzzing of flies, according to St. Theophan. It is the monkey mind, according to Ramakrishna, clamoring from tree to tree, incessantly unstoppable. The Jesus prayer, then, is purposely non-iconic and non-discursive. No reflecting on incidents in the life of Christ, as in the tradition of Ignatian meditation. No contemplating of icons. Do not imagine Jesus. No theologizing while you're praying. One says the prayer slowly and quietly. When thoughts come as they will, do not fight the thoughts, which only redoubles their strength, but refocus gently without any force upon the words of the prayer. When distractions occur as they will occur, enfold yourself in the words of the prayer. The prayer will quiet the mind of thoughts and images in order to enable it to enter within the heart. The aspect of mind meant here, nous in Greek, is not the reasoning brain, but is the inner vision which apprehends intuitively and immediately spiritual realities. The prayer is an invocation of Christ's presence, and the person saying the prayer becomes conscious of his presence, feels his presence, speaks the words of the prayer to his presence with love. To quote Bishop Kalistos again, what we seek in the Jesus prayer is not analysis, but invocation. Not abstract reflection, but personal encounter. A simple sense of presence, a state of imageless gazing. There are three overlapping stages of the prayer of the heart. Oral repetition, silent or mental repetition, and the prayer of the heart properly so called, which is when the prayer begins to pray itself. The latter case is a rare gift of God, but the prayer is democratic. It arose to enough in monastic circles, but it is available to anyone, which is part of the appeal of the way of the pilgrim. The prayer is meant to integrate the entire person, body, and soul, and spirit, and may be synchronized with the breath and or the heartbeat, so that one part of the prayer, say, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, 
may be said on the in-breath, and the rest have mercy on me, a sinner on the out-breath. A prayer rope, knotted woolen or linen rosary, is often used not to count the recitations of the prayer, but to involve the body and to support a rhythmic saying of the prayer. The prayer may be formal, that is, it may be said at set times during the day, according to one's prayer rule. Or it may be free, that is, it may be repeated spontaneously throughout the day as one waits in line, while driving, while doing various tasks, um, a number of them um, already enumerated. Certain rare individuals may find the prayer beginning to repeat itself. For example, St. Siloan, the Athenite, a 20th century Russian monk on Mount Athos, received this gift after only three weeks of practicing the prayer. Unfortunately, someone uh, told him how marvelous a monk he was going to be if after only three weeks he would receive such a wonderful gift, which uh, led to uh, a moment of pride, which then led to years, 20 years, maybe even more, of abandonment, of depression, until eventually um, St. Siloan broke through and managed to return to a sense of God's presence in his life. The fact that this stage of prayer is a gift reminds us that while it takes effort, it is the divine partner and not the human who takes the initiative and whose action is fundamental throughout this prayer and throughout our entire prayer life. While the formula of the prayer is somewhat flexible, the crucial invocation is the invocation of the name of Jesus. Following the biblical tradition of the importance of naming as embodying power to evoke the presence of the person named, the Jesus prayer subsists in invoking the presence of Jesus and his power. At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. St. Paul in the Philippians. And no one can say, Lord Jesus, except in the Holy Spirit. These are the two operative texts here. The prayer is a confession of faith in Jesus as Savior and an acknowledgement of and repentance for sinfulness. The prayer placing himself or herself in company with the publican in the parable. The name of Jesus is also seen as having power in terms of evil. So St. Barnufius and St. John, two elders in the Gaza Strip, um, spoke of the remembrance of the name of God as utterly destroying all that is evil. Or St. John Climacus, flog your enemies with the name of Jesus, for there is no weapon more powerful in heaven or on earth. Let the remembrance of Jesus be united to your every breath, and then you will know the value of stillness. So the prayer as a, as a weapon uh, for the enemies without and the enemies uh, within. Indeed, in the Russian tradition, when monks are tonsured, they're actually given the prayer rope with a prayer that says, this is uh, the weapon uh, which through your repetition by tongue, by 
mind and by heart will enable you to overcome your enemies. It's important to note that the prayer of the heart is practiced in the context of a worshiping community of believers. It was assumed by those teaching and passing on the tradition that those practicing it were participating regularly and fully in the sacramental life of the church. Thus, the prayer became one part of a whole way of life leading from baptism to theosis. Theosis is the divinization of the human person. As St. Athanasius proclaimed, God became human so that humans might become divine. Basing this doctrine on the second epistle of Peter, he who is God by nature took our humanity that we humans might share by grace in his divinity, becoming partakers of the divine nature. So within orthodoxy, theosis or divinization is the end, the telos of the human person, made as we are in the image and likeness of God. We become by grace more and more like the image, the icon of God in which we were created. The purpose of the Jesus prayer then is embedded in the whole process of theosis. This is what it moves us toward. Ultimately, like Christ, the perfect icon of God, those who participate in this tradition with God's grace hoped to be transfigured, as was Christ on Mount Tabor, revealing briefly to the eyes of his disciples his true glory. The light of Tabor shines out from the icons of countless Orthodox churches and homes like beacons, signaling the vocation of theosis, of becoming who we really are, of becoming more and more like the image in which we are created. Accusations going back to the 15th century dispute between Barlam, a Calabrian monk, and St. Gregory Palamas about whether Hezekus were solipsistic navel gazers engaged in delusion with their belief in seeing the uncreated light of Tabor. Uh, there's a wonderful Greek word for naval gazers, which I can't remember at the, at the present. Is that, is that louder? Yes, omphalois, something like that. Yes, omphalois, something like that, yeah. However, um, despite this dispute, there has been a consistent theme within the tradition of the prayer of the heart. That flee, dwell alone, remain silent does not lead to isolation, but rather to profound compassion and connection to all creation. St. Seraphim of Saroff, a wonderful 19th century Russian starets, claimed, acquire inner peace and thousands around you will find their salvation. The anonymous pilgrim observed that when I prayed with my heart, Everything around me seemed delightful and marvelous. The trees, the grass, the birds, the earth, the air, the light seemed to be telling me that they were witnesses to the love of God for man, that everything proved the love of God for man, that all things prayed to God and sang his praise. I felt a burning love for Jesus and for all God's creatures. St. Silwan of Athos, whom I mentioned a few moments ago, in his nights of vigil, sitting on a low stool, reciting the Jesus prayer with his clock stowed in a cupboard to preserve stillness, and his monk's cap pulled down over his eyes and ears, prayed and wept for all those creatures in the cosmos who suffer, for people, for animals, including snakes, and even, even the demons.
Dostoevsky's elder Zosima, Dostoevsky himself, had studied the Russian translation of the Philokalia, knew it well. He had his character, uh, Elder Zosima, speak of the responsibility of all, for all, and with all. Finally, with regard to the communal aspects of the Jesus Prayer, I'd like to end with the story of a young woman who underwent a tragic accident in Kansas City when she was buried alive under a collapsed building. Broken bones, unable to move, she cried out in her pain, save me. And suddenly she felt a hand grab her hand and jerk her up from the rubble. She looked up to see a monk dressed in black. After months of recovery in a hospital, and even more months at home, she began to pull her life back together. And she decided to enter a seminary to study theology. She went to Holy Cross in Brookline, Massachusetts. There she met a monk who was on loan from Mount Athos to help teach a course at the seminary. And one day in the process of her studies, she visited his office. On the wall behind his desk, she saw a picture of a monk, the very monk that had pulled her out of the wreckage of the building. He, his name was Archimandrite Emilianos. He was the abbot of Simon Petra Monastery on Mount Athos, the home monastery of the, of the monk she was visiting. She moved to Greece, met abbot Emilianos, and under his advice became a nun, receiving the name Emiliana. What this story signifies to me are the unseen webs of interrelationship that prayer establishes beyond our expectation and beyond our comprehension. Kyrie Iesu, Christe Iete Theu, Eleison Me, Ton Amartelo. Thank you. so excited by everything I've just heard, I'm tempted to just, just respond, but um, I'm going to try to, I mean, there are many interconnections, I think, between the, although diverse um, presentations, uh, I think one thing that, that I was feeling is the tremendous value of hearing about prayer from people who know what they're talking about. <laughs> and, uh, I really appreciate that, and I think from people who... Um, are able to provide us a sense of its historical embeddedness and, and also to provide us with the, a kind of insider perspective. Um, because, you know, for instance, in the case of the anonymous pilgrim that we, we were just hearing about, um, I seem to remember when I read the book, um, as he's searching for a way to obey St. Paul's injunction to pray without ceasing, he encounters various people, um, and some of them tell him that that method, of, uh, that hesychast method, is a kind of auto-hypnosis. 
and you know that and I, I think one guy says isn't it it's just like those yogans in the east that uh, do weird things with their breath and kind of put themselves into these trance states and have you know these exotic experiences and that has nothing to do with grace and so on but as you could see from the you know from an insider <laughs> viewpoint that's not at all what it's like so uh, where history comes into this i think is that uh, a historian is, is really interested in, uh, among other things, and this is certainly only one of the things a historian has to take an interest in, what people who pray actually think they're doing, not just uh, what it looks like at first glance from the outside. So um, I've just felt that all three of these presentations have just um, helped immensely uh, to um, inculcate in, the, in us all that combination of historical um, appreciation and um, a kind of critical empathy, uh, which I think is what the Center for the Study uh, of Religion is all about. So uh, when I think about prayer, um, I, am, I feel myself pulled in different directions. Um, I think about alternating currents, um, opposites, polarities, um, as, as uh, David Hall said, tensions. Um, and I'll say, I want to say what I think those polarities are and then explore one particular polarity. Uh, for one thing is that prayer can be described as a kind of speech, uh, a kind of a way of talking to God, as we've heard. Um, but it's also a kind of action, as David Hall said, a practice. Um, so uh, one fancy way to put that is to say that it's a speech act. It's a kind of action that communicates, and it's a kind of speech that is an activity, whether it's, you think of that as an internal activity or something that involves gestures and outward actions. Um, but another way to look at it is as a state of being, so that we uh, often can say that someone is in prayer, um, just as a person who communicates with God or with uh, spiritual beings is in communion with them. So it's a, it's a speech, it's an act, and it's a state of being. Or it's a state of becoming. I like to think of it this way, and I was very struck when Al Ravito used that expression, become what you are, which is a wonderful uh, slogan that one encounters in the, in the East, especially among Eastern Christian writers, I think. Um, it's, uh, that is to it's this idea of theosis, of restoring the image and likeness of God and the soul, um, which is sometimes done not simply by having an exalted experience in which you transcend the world of flesh and the devil, but actually by rather mundane activities of a kind of imitative sort. It's like Pascal said in the Pensee. He, this has scandalized many readers of Pascal's Pensees, where he says, uh, well, you know, if, if you want to try out believing, just go to a church and sprinkle holy water on yourself. Go through the motions. And that will kind of percolate inwards and have a transformative effect. Whereas when, when we emphasize sincerity in prayer as the measure of true prayer, authentic prayer, um, well, everything rebels against that way of speaking about, you know, you know hypnot it's, again, it's that idea of hypnotizing yourself into, into prayer. But, but it's there's a psychological astuteness to this idea that you can imitate the kind of person you want to be and, uh, and gradually find yourself drawing closer uh, to that ideal inwardly as well as outwardly. But my main uh, 
feeling about defining prayer is, of course, <laughs> that it can't be done. I mean, I did, do, I did write this, co-author this book with my husband called Prayer History. That wasn't our title. It's really not a history at all. You can't write a history of prayer, I don't think, not, not responsibly. <laughs> but there you go. Um, it slips away all the time. So when I try to nail it down, it sort of turns around and shows another face. Um, it is at once spontaneous and formal, formal, formulaic, ritualistic, solitary and communal, as we've heard. Uh, sometimes the most solitary prayer s- turns out to have these communal implications, like we were hearing about this. Um, I've heard the story about that nun, too. I was really struck. Um, so uh, you never know. It can be seem very bold, but also very obsequious. What is this groveling we do before, before God that also seems to have something to do with uplifting human dignity? How is it possible that these two opposite uh, dispositions of humility and uh, kind of boldness to go before the divine throne and bring a petition, how do those two fit together in the same person, sometimes even in the same uh, prayer? Prayer can be tranquilizing and can also be ecstatic. Uh, Prayer can be, and this is one of the terms I want to look at today, magical. And it can also have a strong anti-magical dimension, or at least that's one of the uh, controversial aspects of prayer. As we just heard, the the power of the name um, in the Hezekiah tradition is claimed to have uh, it is claimed to be uh, a great power that can be wielded as a weapon. That sounds like magic, doesn't it? But again, um, when you look closely at the tradition and when you look at it in its context, um, there are built-in safeguards against pressing that idea too far. But what really interests me are these is is not resolving these, these tensions and paradoxes, but I actually kind of want to celebrate them and, uh, and lift them up for our consideration and even to suggest that without them, prayer would not be the dynamic thing that it is, that there, that, uh, there are opposite poles involved that generate the kind of electricity. Um, so I'm going to skip a little part here so that I won't take too much of our time. One of these opposite poles, these oppositions within prayer, um, has already been alluded to uh, by Professor Hall uh, when he spoke about Christian primitivism. As it happens, um, when when my husband and I set out to write this book about prayer, we were looking around for uh, predecessors. And uh, the one book we found that seemed to be just kind of a big sort of sprawling general study of prayer uh, was uh, Friedrich Heiler's classic book uh, from 1918 called Prayer, a Study in the History and Psychology of Religion. But what we found there, uh, it's a wonderful book. I don't want to belittle it at all. It's a profound book. But it does take the Christian primitivist point of view. Um, it's not really always the kind of history, historical phenomenological study one would want. Here's an example. Prayer is at first, he says, a spontaneous emotional discharge, a free outpouring of the heart, an intimate intercourse with God, and then only later, by a process of petrification and mechanization, it hardens into rites and formulas. So he is not sympathetic to the idea that you can become who you truly are by imitation, by repetition. Um, and I think he's 
but drawing on this sort of uh, pietistic tradition, this uh, very, you know, which is also a, uh, a devotional tradition of, of great uh, power and depth, um, and perhaps also on a kind of rationalism, uh, uh, there's um, echoes of Kant there, I think. But anyway, Heiler thinks that you can separate prayer from ritual. Um, originally on the program, we were going to have Catherine Bell, um, and uh, the great scholar uh, in ritual studies, and I'm sure she would um, bring this across very strongly, that it's actually very hard to separate prayer from ritual to find a, rit- a religious ritual. I mean, certain kinds of ritual behavior can be found in primates, you know, but to, to find a religious um, ritual uh, in which prayer is not somehow involved, or conversely, to find a prayer which you could really uh, say is entirely on marked by ritual, I think we would be hard-pressed to do that. I think, in fact, that Heiler is speaking as a prophet, not a historian. There is a prophetic strain in every, I think, in all religious traditions. All the major religious traditions have this prophetic strain, uh, this primitivism, that um, wants to purify prayer of its uh, accretions, of its externalities, um, and uh, of its uh, con- magical connotations, perhaps, that, that creep in, and not just at the folk level, but at all levels, as prayer um, develops historically. Um, um, but I, it's my impression that these efforts to purify prayer of its formulaic uh, and uh, quasi-magical uh, <clears throat> dimensions... Sorry, I'm running out of... Um, that these efforts rarely succeed. Um, they're an interesting, uh, often an interesting moment within a tradition that, that also throws up all kinds of, of other ways of looking at prayer. Um, so there are these tensions and these polarities between ritualism and spontaneity, between magic and, and true piety, Uh, Even between petition and adoration, you will find some Christian writers ranking the various kinds of prayer, saying the highest prayer is uh, wordless contemplative prayer. The lowest form of prayer is where you ask uh, for for God to uh, help you pass that exam or, um, you know, for for the good things of life. Um, I think that um, I'm not sure I agree with that, actually. in any case, I think it's the case that one and the same prayer can, in fact, ask for worldly goods and also ask for the, the spiritual freedom uh, from desire for worldly goods. Um, and though it might seem to be more high-minded to pray only uh, for that freedom from desire, it would destroy that essential paradox. Um, so I want to explore this paradox with you in terms of two ideas. Uh, one is prayer as magic, and the other is prayer as sacrifice. And I was very delighted that uh, Sister Meg uh, spoke about St. Therese and her sacrificial prayer, because that uh, is, a, is a wonderful um, example, and, and I think also is the most deeply influential example of sacrificial prayer, uh, at least in the, in the Catholic tradition today. So with a few 
uh, snapshots, uh, which I wouldn't uh, dignify by calling them historical, just some snapshots I want to try to illustrate uh, these, uh, this polarity between magical prayer, which I see as prayer as uh, power, prayer as protection, magic, using the power of the name, for instance, as a magical shield or weapon, and um, the other pole, which I'm calling uh, sacrificial prayer, which is prayer as surrender and as communion. So we'll call these the prayer of the magician and the prayer of the priest in the sense of sacrificial uh, prayer. So the prayer of the magician. Um, there's a book called The Greek Magical Papyri, which you may have encountered. Um, where I teach at Smith College, uh, we have a, a wonderful library system. There's five colleges in the area, and we share library resources. There are multiple copies of The Greek Magical Papyri in these five libraries. They're almost always checked out. Um, it's evidently, somebody really likes this book. <laughs> so uh, eventually, we were able to get hold of the, the Smith College copy of the Greek Magical Papyri, and we found that a large chunk of it had been torn out. <laughs> so we were really curious about, you know, what was that uh, irresistible portion of the Greek Magical Papyri? This is a collection of Greco-Roman magical texts from the second century uh, B.C. to the 5th century A.D., roughly. Um, uh, so um, we got another copy uh, from Amazon and found that the section that was missing is a part that's called the Mithras Liturgy, although it's not really Mithraic, um, but, um, but it's kind of a recipe for an extended magical prayer to a solar deity. And it begins in a very prayerful way, uh, with a humble petition to uh, God, who is addressed as first origin of my origin, which is a, a beautiful expression for God. And then God is named, because this is a tradition in which the power of the name is indeed very, very strong, and that there are secret names for God. And if you possess that secret name, you have you know, an initiate's knowledge, that's a saving knowledge. Um, in this case, the God's name is, the, is a string of vowels. It's the seven Greek vowels, which are also the notes of the musical scale. So I guess, in, you know, an English equivalent would be that uh, if you call God, I-O, something like that. That's the name of God, all vowels, all breath, no consonants to stop you. And in fact, there's this long litany that follows of many, uh, many more vowels, mostly vowels, and some palindromes and things. If you actually try saying this long litany of vowels, you get winded very quickly. Uh, I, I mean, it would take like a, you know, a real uh, virtuoso, a diva, you know, to, to say this prayer. Um, but, you have, but the remedy is when your breath runs out, um, the text tells you to turn and face the sun this is a solar uh, devotion, and breathe in very deeply. And when you breathe in, you breathe in the rays of the sun. And as you keep breathing in the rays of the sun, you start to float upwards, and you uh, end up in heaven, like a, like a hot air balloon, essentially. Um, so as, when you get to heaven, it gets very dangerous, because there are guardian deities that don't want you there. And they come running up to you. So what kind of a prayer do you say to these guardian deities? Um, 
to appease them. According to the text, um, you don't use uh, intelligible words. You make sounds, uh, popping and hissing sounds. So, um, and it doesn't explain what the popping and hissing sounds mean, but there's a text from the same period called the Eighth Book of Moses, which says that popping is the sound made by the sacred crocodile when it rises up from the Nile to take a breath and to greet the high god. And hissing is the sound made by the sacred snake, uh, which devours its own tail and is therefore an emblem of of, uh, rebirth. And popping and hissing are also the first two letters in the god's name in this other book, um, in this other text. Um, And they're also the sounds that the high god made when he called the world into being. And that's one of the things that in, in, I've seen in many prayer traditions. The sounds you make when you pray have something to do with the sounds God made when he called the world into existence and when he called each one of us by name. Um, that's a suggestive idea anyway. Um, the Eighth Book of Moses then is suggesting that these are sounds that are not lower than human speech but higher than human speech um, and are a kind of echo of divine speech or a kind of language of paradise, which is actually what we wanted to call this book instead of prayer history. But publishers will be publishers. Um, and that the sound of, these, of this popping and hissing delights the gods. These were called, uh, uh, in Roman text, these were called the voces magicae, the magical sounds. Um, and they were part of a kind of esoteric lingua franca throughout the Mediterranean world, which was involved, it was a kind of a hodgepodge of Egyptian, Hebrew, Greek, Aramaic, all these long vowel sequences that make you out of breath, and uh, tongue-twisting palindromes, like Ablanathan Alba was a favorite one, that's a palindrome. And I, I, I assume, um, not being an expert on this period, nonetheless I assume that it serves in some ways like glossolalia, that there's a kind of disengagement of discursive thought which is something that our our speakers have already addressed, that prayer, um, although it often involves uh, long, extended, coherent appeals to the deity, often poetic appeals to the deity, uh, also uh, sometimes takes forms that disconnect the uh, talkative mind. And that's what these uh, magical uh, sounds uh, seem to do. I think also, to a certain extent, ordinary hymn singing does that. When you sing your prayer or chant it, instead of simply speaking it, well, Augustine says, he who sings prays twice. Um, you're also lighting up different parts of the brain when you use singing instead of speech. You know, people who suffer from aphasia can sometimes sing uh, something that they can't say. So, um, the uh, repertoire of Greco-Roman magical prayers also includes material substances. And um, in many prayer traditions, there are material things that you do when you pray. It's, um, again, this, this is polarity between the inward and the outward. Um, for uh, Greco-Roman magical prayers, you really need a, a well-stocked pantry. In one very interesting one, 
that I really wonder. I'm assuming that, that it's one of the pagan groups on my campus that, that tore out the pages of the Mithras liturgy and is using it. And I'm wondering if they use this one. This one says, when you, uh, in order to uh, bring a petition up to God, what you do is you, you get something called natron, which is a soap made from a salt drawn from the Nile. Um, and you inscribe your prayer on it. It's kind of like a message in a bottle sort of thing. So you write using ink that's made out of mashed flowers and incense. You write it on the soap. You soak it in milk and wine. And then you eat the soap. <laughs> I don't know if, you know, if the pagan groups on my campus are writing their prayers on soap and eating them. But I do think there's this kind of a there's food for thought here. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, which is this question about, um, as Professor Hall was saying, what is real prayer? What is authentic prayer? Um, I'm not here to try to answer that question. I'm just uh, trying to talk about how, how different people have, have tried to answer it. Um, where do you draw the line between religion and magic? turns out to be a very old question. Greek, Greek, or Roman, Greek and Roman writers were asking this question, too, even though they didn't separate religion and magic in the same way that some early modern writers like Tyler and Fraser have done. They did feel that there was a difference between uh, noble prayer, that you stand upright, you're out in the open, you're in public, um, and the kind of furtive uh, prayers that are prayer spells that are done in secret, that are done at night, that might involve prostration or bowing. Those are not, you know, as Aristotle says, too, the human being has this dignity that's expressed by standing upright. And when you pray to God, even though there's, you know, humility is part of it, pray that way. Um, the classicist Simon uh, Pullen um, said, Nice people at religious festivals did not usually strangle a small menagerie of birds, eat a dead chick, and make sure all this was done alone. But in fact, nice people did conduct small family sacrifices. They did use prayer for its practical benefits. And public ritual prayer did have some clearly magical aspects to it. For instance, these strange sounds like female how do you say ululation? Ululation. You know that sound? I once tried that out on my family, and they're all male, you know, and they can't make the sound. And they were, they were terrified. They said, don't ever do that again. It's an eerie sound that, that women seem to be better able to make than men and is used in a lot of mourning rites and, and prayer. Um, so, so the line between prayer and magic is fuzzy. In this case, and I think in, in many other traditions, um, but some prayers are, are more overt, overtly magical than others, and I think the telltale signs, if, you, if we're looking for whether a prayer is magical, include abundant use of materials, like uh, you know, eating your prayer on soap, abundant use of incense, candles, wine, of bodily material like blood or spittle, um, Peculiar ways of handling texts where you use a prayer text um, not just to get the meaning out of it, but maybe you kiss it um, or you handle it in a special way or you incense it. Um, that has magical associations. Um, and again, unusual kinds of speech and sound. Um, use of archaic words, of nonsense words. Endless repetition. There's a reason why the critics of the Jesus Prayer um, 
considered it magical. Um, repetition of this incant incantatory sort is a, a strong feature of magical prayer. Um, what uh, Rudolf Otto called original numinous sounds are a feature of magical prayer. So anything but ordinary speech. And especially, I think, prayer is magical when it's used as a concrete object oriented toward the solution of a concrete problem um, and used like a recipe for achieving a certain outcome, making rain. I mean, prayers to make rain are in all traditions except those that have enough rain um, or too much. Uh, prayers to stop rain, prayers to heal sickness, prayers to hasten redemption in the Jewish tradition. There's a rich magical a tradition of Jewish magical prayer and theurgical prayer. Um, to hasten redemption is, of course, uh, uh, a worthy goal <laughs> of such prayer. Um, and often in magical prayer, a kind of dramatic reenactment of the desired outcome is involved. And magical prayer seems to be about change, transformation of arid land to fertile, of disease to health, of poverty to abundance, of death to life. Now, I wouldn't want to say that all magic is prayerful, but I do want to try to convince you that all, uh, I'm going to use the word that you said is one of those tip-offs that people are evaluating prayer, all lively prayer has a magical dimension. Um, which is certainly present in the scenes in Mark's gospel where Jesus prays in the imperative mode to a demon, be silent and come out of him, to a leper, be clean, to a dead child, little girl, get up, to a deaf man, to his ears, that is, be open. Um, looking up to heaven and sighing are archetypal gestures of prayer that Jesus uses here. Using spittle to heal and crying in archaic language, as Jesus does in Mark 7 and John 9, those are archetypal gestures of magic. Now, I want to hasten to say I am not proposing an interpretation of, of the Jesus the magician sort, the Morton Smith kind of thing, because he, he just goes off the deep end. <laughs> but, and of course, you know, Christians will say that these works of Jesus are not, they're nothing like sorcery. These are eschatological signs whose full meaning would be revealed only with his death and resurrection and ascension. So this is a special kind of magic, which we could call redemptive magic. Uh, C.S. Lewis you know, talks about deeper magic that's founded on a personal relationship to Christ, to the triune God, to the mother of God, to the communion of saints in the Christian tradition. And this sense of personal relationship has produced very interesting kinds of Christian magical prayer. One kind I like to call the 360-degree prayer because it's a prayer that surrounds you in a kind of protective mantle, almost like the mantle of Mary in those portraits of uh, the Misericordia portraits where you have all these little people huddled under Mary's cloak. Um, the sense of inexhaustible protection and reassurance is a fruit of a, is a distinctively Christian um, mode of prayer, and it's produced this uh, prayer from uh, Lancelot Andrews. Be Lord within me to strengthen me, without me to preserve, over me to shelter, beneath to support, before me to direct, behind me to bring back, round about me to fortify. 
There's a, a more visceral example of that 10th century Celtic prayer that goes, Christ's cross over this face and thus over my ear, Christ's cross over this eye, Christ's cross over this nose, and covers all the rest of you. And the most famous example of this 360-degree prayer tradition is St. Patrick's Breastplate, which I won't repeat, but which you're probably familiar with. Um, But the interesting thing about it is the legend has it is that when St. Patrick and his companions said this prayer, it transformed them into the likeness of deer, and they were therefore able to escape an ambush. So it was like an invisibility spell. Um, The sign of the cross is a kind of... A 360 degree or breastplate prayer, um, you know, when a baseball player uses it. Tertullian says, at every step, at every moment, at every coming in and going out, in dressing and putting on our shoes, in the bath, at the table, at the lighting of the candles, lying down or sitting down, whatever affair concerns us, we mark our foreheads with the sign of a cross. That's, you know, this is, a, you know, from Ephesians, the breastplate of, uh, of righteousness. Um, Gregory the Great tells the story about St. Benedict um, who uh, was given a poisoned drink uh, by his disgruntled uh, sheep and uh, made the, the sign of a cross over it and the poison went away. So this is magic, but it hints at something more because when we're talking about the sign of the cross in the tr- tradition, uh, Christian tradition, the sign of the cross has on it, or shadowing over it, kind of implicit in it, uh, the figure of the crucified man whose sacrifice it represents. Um, so while it's supposed to steal the night of faith against danger, it also carries with it this demand to pour out your life for others. Um, this brings us to this element of sacrifice, that if we're going to, again, make uh, value judgments, if it's true that there's no vital prayer without an element of magic, perhaps there's no fully realized prayer without an element of sacrifice, which is the problem, of course, with the the, uh, current um, health and prosperity, name it and claim it sort of prayers. Um, The problem isn't that there's a magical note to their tradition. I'm always been a little disappointed at the reaction to books like the Prayer of Jabez and stuff, because it's, it, because it's really, petitionary prayer is like that. You really do ask for good things that you need. There's nothing wrong with that. But um, the problem is that they lack the countervailing note of sacrifice. Um, the big bestseller right now, Oprah's favorite, The Secret, it says, You are the most powerful magnet in the universe. So as you think a thought, you are also attracting like thoughts to you. This is the magical principle of the law of correspondence. Like attracts like. Um, This kind of thought magic has a venerable tradition in American culture uh, with, you know, new thought, Christian science. Um, There's just, it's funny how every time a new book like this comes out, it's announced as something revolutionary. It's not. It's the American specialty, this kind of magical prayer. And the problem with it is, and in a a less crass sense, I think also some of the prayer studies are are doing this. The problem is that it's treating prayer simply as a technique. Um, And so for that, the antidote is sacrificial prayer, the prayer of the priest. So... um, for the prayer, now I want to move to the prayer of the priest and give a few snapshot examples. 
Um, one is a story about a, a Jewish holy man from the Second Temple period um, who uh, was called Honi the Circle draw, Drawer, or Circle Maker, because he had this ability to uh, make a circle and stand in it and uh, demand things from God and, get, and his demands would be granted. In particular, he was a rainmaker. There are a number of um, Talmudic uh, accounts of uh, uh, rabbis who are great rainmakers. Um, and in this story, um, he's asked, there's a time of, of drought, and so he's asked to do this. So he, he draws the circle, he stands at it, and he says, God, I'm not going to budge from this spot until you bring down the rain. And so, but on this occasion, God toys with Honey, and he, and he um, sends a downpour that causes a flood. And so then, uh, and the townspeople come and say, you've got to do something. So he makes the circle again. He stands in, and he said, look, that was too much. I just want a nice rain. So this time, God sends this little trickle, and it's too little. So... Um, it's one of these, you know, be careful what you ask for, you might get it sort of situations. So then Honey does something different. He doesn't make the circle. He doesn't make a demand. Instead, he asks for a, a bullock to be brought to him. He sacrifices it, and he delivers a prayer which simply reminds God of his own steadfast faithfulness to Israel. And immediately the wind began to blow, and the clouds were dispersed, and the sun shone, and the people went out into the fields and gathered for themselves mushrooms and truffles. So is this wonderful idyllic uh, result of this. The moral of it seems to be that the true virtuoso of prayer is not the wonder worker, although wonders will occur, so much as the friend of God, and that the magic inherent in Jewish prayer is not Faustian, but is the fruit of humble waiting upon God. And sacrifice is the, is the key symbol, in a way, in the consummate expression of this uh, humble waiting upon God in a tradition, of course, in which uh, sac ritual sacrifice is no longer possible. There, is, there are many sayings uh, about uh, prayer as the uh, internalization of, of sacrifice. So... Um, there are also the prophetic critiques of sacrifice, just as there are the prophetic there's always a strain of prophetic critiques of the magical element in religion um, and prayer. So uh, there are you know, uh, all of these prophetic denunciations of sacrifice um, periodically in every tradition, and certainly in the biblical, tr biblical tradition, um, saying that God only wants the sacrifice of praise as it is in Hebrews, and can do without all that blood. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I hate your feasts, that sort of thing. This is, again, this prophetic moment correcting against an excess um, or an insufficiently paradoxical understanding of what prayer is about. Um, and uh, suggesting, I think, though not a rejection of, of the sacrificial principle, but a sublimation of it into prayer, uh, study and works of loving kindness, um, the three pillars that of uh, rabbinic Judaism uh, that would be the, the kind of temple after the temple was destroyed. Um, so giving up, but, but giving up the outward form of the rite 
and renouncing its benefits, saying to God, I want these good things, but more than that, I want you, I would say belongs to the very logic of sacrifice. It's not a dilution of it or a rejection of it, but it's the very logic of it. Sacrifice, um, in many different traditions, involves a kind of substitute offering. Let me give you an example. Um, in Vedic tradition, so um, the Rig Veda is around 1500 BC, um, there's a myth that says that the world is the body of a sacrificed God. And this underwrites uh, the um, idea that uh, sacrifice needs to be performed for world maintenance. The original sacrifice from which the world was made needs to be periodically repeated in order to sustain the world and also to attain well-being. So um, if you're wealthy and you can be a patron of a big fire sacrifice, you get uh, all kinds of benefits from it. Prosperity, fertility, um, lung, um, progeny, you know, all those sorts of good things, which uh, classical Hinduism has never said you shouldn't desire. These are legitimate desires. Um, but there's an interesting moment in um, the, the Vedic fire sacrifice, um, which, by the way, is undergoing an interesting revival right now in different parts of India. But um, there's an interesting moment where um, the sacrificer formally renounces the fruits of the sacrifice. He's just lavished a huge amount of money, uh, months of preparation, in order to perform a sacrifice that will give him some good things that he needs for himself and his clan. And he, the first thing he does is renounce it. Um, saying, um, you know, formally giving up his claim. This act of renunciation in the midst of a sacrifice became a kind of root metaphor for the ascetic movement that produced the Upanishads and the early Buddhist and Jain traditions, where they would replace the Vedic external rites of sacrifice with practices of austerity and contemplation that would internalize which would make your own body the site of a fire sacrifice, which would generate a heat, tapas, they called it, strong enough to burn up all your attachments and desires. Um, in the Bhagavad Gita, which is here at the beginning of this great surge of devotional Hinduism, the bhakti movement, Krishna tells Arjuna that he should act sacrificially by renouncing the fruits of his action. So the thing you do in the you know, rite of sacrifice, you now transfer that over to your life and uh, relinquish the fruits of action and place your trust in God. And uh, Krishna, when he reveals his divine lordship, says, I am the sacrifice. I am the syllable om, which is the essence of the fire sacrifice, and I am the sacrifice of prayer. So there's that idea again. We, you know, we see it in Hebrews, and then we see it here in uh, classical Hinduism, this idea of a sacrifice of prayer or of prayer as a sacrifice. Um, similarly, in Buddhist thought, the fire sacrifice is sublimated into the spiritual discipline of the monk and the compassionate self-offering of the bodhisattva. Sister Meg was talking about that kind of sacrificial self-offering, which is the mark of uh, the Mahayana Buddhist tradition. Um, Shantideva, the great uh, author on the uh, bodhisattva way of life, has this prayer. May I be the medicine and the physician for the sick. May I be their nurse until their illness never recurs. For the sake of accomplishing the welfare of all sentient beings, I freely give up my body 
enjoyments and all my virtues. This is a transfer of merit is a part of this bodhisattva practice, and uh, this kind of engagement in the suffer- exchange with the suffering of others is an absolutely key idea. So the calling Therese a bodhisattva, you know, just works so beautifully. Um, and as I've suggested, sacrifice endures in Jewish liturgical prayer, um, particularly the, the, the standing prayer, uh, which is a kind of replacement for the daily and Shabbat sacrifices of the temple. And sacrifices, of course, an enduring ritual practice for Islam so that it, ha- it functions both as the symbol of the self-offering that, that, it, that surrender or submission means in Islam, and it is also a communal ritual practice that commemorates Abraham's primordial obedience. So in Christianity, I would then venture to say, having talked about some forms of Christian magical prayer, that sacrificial prayer is uh, more central than anything else, that the intercessory prayer that Al, Professor Rabito spoke about was, is, you know, that prayer of all for all is sacrificial prayer, that the prayer of abandonment to divine providence is sacrificial prayer, that the form of Eucharistic prayer is, you know, out, is symbolically sacrificial, that it's a sacrificial act, and the sacrifice is often linked with this idea of being in communion that the prayer of great mystics like, like uh, Therese of Lisieux, like Mother Teresa, who um, poured out their life for others and who also experienced this dark night of the soul in their life is sacrificial prayer. And that for these distinctively Christian forms of, of sacrificial prayer, the exemplar is Jesus, um, in this, uh, of course, in the teach, if you want to see what Jesus has to say about prayer, obviously you look at the Lord's Prayer. Um, and there you find rich, I think, rich sacrificial connotations. Um, you begin by hallowing the divine name, like the Jewish Kaddish and like the Psalms of Ascent, which, uh, again, are, you know, remind one of the um, ascent to the altar, the sacrificial altar. Um, you pray for the establishment of God's rule and then for the sacrifice of human interest to divine. Thy will be done. The remaining petitions and how anyone could disparage petitionary prayer in the Christian tradition, given that this is, you know, full, totally petitionary prayer, seven or eight petitions, depending on how you count. The remaining ones are about human needs, daily bread for sustenance now and in the age to come, forgiveness of debts, repair of fractured relations, protection from persecution, deliverance from evil. Um, The sacrificial element here, although the Lord's Prayer incidentally is figured in a lot of magical folk magic uses, um, the sacrificial element here is very strong in that I think if if you're saying you're you're living on daily handouts, daily bread uh, from God, and you're, you're receiving forgiveness of sins and reconciliation with your enemies and liberation from inner demons, you can't receive all that and harbor any illusion of self-sufficiency. So that if the petitions are granted, uh, there may be a magic to that, but the granting of those petitions entails the remaking of the petitioner. Um, and of course, thy will be done... 
um, is also the prayer of Jesus in his agony. Father, if thou art willing, remove this cup from me. He's asking for something. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. So this is the most spectacular example of failed prayer. Um, but the interesting thing here is that Jesus doesn't rescind his request. As he, he's not saying, okay, you know, I'm like a stoic philosopher. I accept the world. Um, he's saying, um, I wish this, but nevertheless, thy will be done. There's a kind of alchemical transformation into a willing consent. Um, so the, and the sacrifice on the cross, then, is... Uh, the final movement of the sacrificial prayer. And I think the interpretive key to Christian prayer, uh, which is not a, a question of repeating the sacrifice of Christ, which I think many people have worried about that idea when sacrificial language is used in speaking about Christian uh, worship. It's not a matter of repeating that sacrifice, but of being drawn into that mystery and to pray for the things one needs while also praying, nevertheless, not my will but thine be done, is really to be caught up in the redemptive magic of Christian prayer, which is where the breastplate prayer, the 360-degree prayer, and the martyr's confession are one. Thank you. Thank you, panel. We're going to take our intermission now. Uh, there should be refreshments uh, available for you out in the hallway. And uh, let's reconvene in about uh, 10 minutes, uh, 15 at most, and uh, we'll have plenty of time for questions and discussion. I'd like to see your course to be very plentiful. I mean, huge. <laughs> huge. Has it all? Back on. Any expectations here? Just interaction. Mean the just mainly with the audience, yeah. And, uh, take an opportunity to interact with one another if you want to, but, but I think we'll be, yeah. yeah. So I think we're going to um, go ahead and reconvene. Three of our panelists are back, and so uh, that's enough to get started. And I think if we, and there's our fourth panelist, I think if we... Uh, get started. Whoever else is in the hallway will come in. What we uh, would like to uh, give you the opportunity uh, to do in the time that we have remaining is uh, ask your uh, questions. We had a very rich uh, set of presentations, uh, lots of things on our minds, I'm sure. Uh, so this is, uh, this is your time, and uh, uh, whoever is brave enough to be first. Usually we say uh, the first question should come from a student. Um, we do have a few students, but uh, I think we'll let anybody uh, ask a question or make a comment. So please, yeah, Jason. <laughs> That's close enough, okay. right? Um, just a quick question uh, for uh, Carol Selesky. Um, I thought that your uh, very suggestive and interesting talk, um, you set up some sort of fascinating polls between prayer as magic and prayer as sacrifice. And I wanted to push you as to whether you're conceiving of these things as in diametric opposition or just as two of a number of different possible poles in our process of defining prayer. 
And I suggest that to you because if you look at the uh, Hindu fire sacrifice, or if you look at it in its Buddhist context, which I know a little bit better, um, what you'll see is that the amount that one sacrifices is rhetorically connected to the amount of reward that's going to come from that sacrifice. So right? it is magical. So in those, sacrifice is more magical. The more, the bigger things you destroy, the more conspicuous your public offering, the more reward that would come from it. So in that context, at least, those things aren't seen as binaries, but uh, in opposition, oppositional poles, but actually seen as mutually reinforcing. And I wonder mm -hmm. if, uh, just if you would expand on that a little bit more, um, and uh, you, whether there are other poles that you see, or whether you see those in necessarily in opposition. Yeah, I think that's a very important qualification. And it, you know, it's very easy to get carried away with, uh, with uh, motifs when you start working on them. Because in fact, in, you know, ritual sacrifice uh, to the, is a performance you know, the most basic kind is, is, is the, the Latin formula for it is do ut des, I give that you make, might give. So I'm giving you something, I'm getting something in exchange. And uh, so, I mean, there are many different kinds of sacrifice. So I, I might have been mm, <laughs> just glossing over that important point in order to hurry and get to the spiritual idea of sacrifice, which occurs when... Uh, the element of renunciation and not of world maintenance is emphasized within, you know, with respect, for instance, to the fire sacrifice. You have uh, potentially both elements, but it's only in the ascetic and devotional traditions that um, that the, the world maintenance aspect might be subordinated to um, this idea of renouncing the fruits and of being liberated through that act of renunciation. Uh, so it's it's infinitely more complicated than, and there's so many, I mean, I, I was started, there was a part I crossed out from my talk at the beginning, which was just about the sheer diversity of forms of prayer. Um, so if, if that polarity was suggestive, I'm, I'm very happy, and to see it fail to do justice to that richness is exactly what one would expect. <laughs> well, thanks for pointing out for that particular point, because... Uh, uh, imagine a sacrifice without any magical connotations. That wouldn't work either. You know, a ritual sacrifice, definitely. Yeah, um, I just would speak to it a little bit. Can you hear fine? Yeah. Okay. Um, again, not with the academic background, but uh, in teaching prayer these years, I had a puppeteer one time who said he really found from his own experience a difference between prayer and magic. And magic is when you access yourself through your powers, your human powers, uh, to manipulate the energies that can establish something else to happen. Whereas usually prayer is mediated by the faith, which has some belief form that is the mediator that makes happen what it is that you are praying for. So in that sense, the Orthodox are afraid to call the Jesus prayer a mantra because it's too close to magic. It's something that would be done from the self rather than mediated through the intercessory of Christ Jesus. So, you know, that's probably just a different use of the word magic. Uh, but I, I think I do understand that magic is manipulating energies, and I've seen that those dark forces and those forces and even forces of light that can come from human sources. But actual prayer comes from a deity, and that's why, like, you know, in Buddhist dialogue, they would have merit, a lot of things about merit, in karmic, you know, but they don't have prayer because there's no object of their prayer. So. Can I, 
add one, one little oh. thing to that? I'm yeah. excited by what you just said. Um, it's just that, just this one little thought that um, it's very easy for one person's prayer to be another person's magic, quite simply. Yeah. It's just a question of whether you, uh, you know, the, the person who's performing a mantra that's unfamiliar may look like they're, they're uh, just, you know, going through the motions and are trying to get some reward for it. Um, there's also that dialectic between self-power and other power that is so important in East Asian Buddhism. I mean, have you ever found a really totally self-power practice? No one claims to be just self-power, um, you know, even if it's, uh, you know, Zen, Zen meditation as opposed to Pure Land Buddhist practice. Pure, the Pure Land Buddhist will say that Zen person is just, you know, trying to uh, tranquilize himself or herself through a self-power technique, salvation by your own bootstraps. But that doesn't really correspond to what that person is experiencing. There is another power aspect, even without a theistic kind of formulation of it. And that's the thing that it's frustrating because we like to be able to put things in these neat categories, but people are constantly defying our categories. Yes, sir. Uh, a few years ago, I invited two people to accompany me to see the French film Therese. And at the end of it, when we were leaving, they scolded me and said, how dare you invite us to see something like this? Uh, their complaint was that it bordered on masochism. Um, and I'd like you just to pursue the question of how the real use of suffering can be seen as distinct from a love, almost like a love for it, which would border on the masochistic. Suppose that's to me. Yeah. Um, thank you for that question because I, the other side of that question is the cult of Therese of being this sweet. In fact, this is the mm. picture that is just pretty repulsive. Um, <laughs> sorry, I have a good one, but I sent it to my nephew. Um, that's a good criticism. But I think the best book you could read on this would be Catherine Harrington's, I think it is. And she um, has a book on Therese, and she was looking for the destructive, uh, anti-feminine bias that the cult of Therese would have. And she ended up saying this woman's pretty amazing. And she took her neurotic tendencies and showed uh, how what she did do was not go toward them. You know, back to me teaching those doctors at St. Vincent's Hospital, as I explained and we found the text of her teaching of the little way, it is totally away from the self. And it is uh, no, uh, no commentary about the self and no commentary about the suffering. It just is. And lifting it up as a little flower for the sake of something else. It's quite abstract. And um, so she does take her neurotic self and she just doesn't expect her to be anything different than that, except through grace she can transcend it. But she isn't insisting on a transformation of her psychic and emotional damage. Uh, but I would recommend that book for you because she ends up um, just answering that question better than I can in a very brief moment. If I can mention another book, I think it's the title is The Passion of, of Joan of Arc, I think. Um, and... Um, it talks really about her sense of abandonment uh, during her final years by God and her sense of, uh, of almost certain, certainty that there was no heaven or if it was that heaven was totally closed to her. And so what you have here is 
is a is a what on the surface looks like a saccharine poverty, a saccharine piety um, that is being um, um, undercut by a tremendous amount of psychological and emotional suffering and sense of, of abandonment of the dark night mm-hmm. that apparently her namesake, uh, you know, Mother uh, Teresa also experienced. And, I mean, to such an extent that she said to one of the uh, nuns helping care for her, if there's any medicine close by that's poisoned, don't, you know, or could be poisoned, don't leave it there because I will, I will take it. So this is a woman who's under, you know, at the age of 23, he was going un, uh, undergoing unbelievable suffering, which undercuts all of the stereotypes that we have about her as this sweet saccharine, um, you know, uh, pious bourgeois, um, you know, French uh, woman of the of the 19th century. Um, there's also a chapter in a book. Um, oh, I'm trying to remember the title now uh, by Oliver Tugwell. Um, which is is a really beautiful treatment of of her suffering. Uh, I can't think of the of Simon Tugwell. Simon Tugwell. Simon Tugwell. Simon, Simon Tugwell. Um, I see it right in front of me too. Yeah. Hardbacks. Way, ways of ways <laughs> ways of Im- ways of imperfection. I think it's ways called. of imperfection. Ways of imperfection. Yeah, yeah. The problem of, of book addicts with failing memories. Um, <laughs> but I I would strongly recommend just if if you want to read one thing that that really gets at. Uh, Therese's piety, this the the ways of imperfection, the chapter in that book by Simon uh, Tugwell. Kathy, I, I'd like to ask anyone about dry spells. Um, Professor Radcliffe brought up for a Russian monk on Mount Athos who had this one wonderful, you know, event, and then was, was rewarded or, or punished with a moment of pride in twenty years of not being in touch, and he just talked to us, you know, about another example of that. But if any of you could comment for us on. Um, what people in different traditions have said about that sort of loss of connection. You know, is it a matter for shame, for example? Has it been a matter for shame in some um, instances, something that you would never actually confess to anyone? Um, is it a, an expected part of the cycle of one's spiritual journey that there will be times when that takes place? <laughs> yes, you. Yes, and all the above. A short answer is it just is part of metabolizing the experience. So you first have this wake up and you're full of the glory of God and presence, and then you metabolize it. And the dark, you know, first of all, you have to reduce the afflictions, and the afflictions go away, and and uh, you have this presence. And then the presence gets metabolized, and then there's the darkness. And this it's in service of detaching us from our self-made concepts of God. We have to renounce our thoughts of God. We have to renounce our thoughts of holiness, renounce our thoughts of ourself. And so it's a purification experience that really readies us for God's presence as God is. And so it's almost 100%. I remember uh, one time with Thomas Keating, uh, we were talking about, I'm a Benedictine, he's Trappist, and does a lot more with Trappistines and the more cloistered nuns. And he said, probably nine out of ten Trappistines are in that dark space, you know, getting up at three in the morning with all those vigils and everything. Um, and that's, uh, now, my house doesn't get up that early, and so we're not quite that dark. <laughs> <laughs> Can I recommend a book on that subject that I think is very, that I found very helpful, uh, also Benedictine, The Letters of John Chapman, who was the Benedictine abbot of Downside in, in England, um, he had a lot of correspondents who were non-monastics, 
um, and uh, he was uh, very influenced by John of the Cross and also uh, de Cossade, um, this idea of abandonment to divine providence in the present moment, Brother Lawrence, that sort of thing. Um, but he has a, a saying that I'm always coming back to called, pray as you can, not as you can't. Very simple advice that he would give to people. Um, he advised um, Evelyn Underhill when she had problems with dry spells. Uh, he saw the dry spell as uh, painful, but you know, absolutely a sign of uh, God taking you somewhere. And it seems to me that it's, a, it's actually almost a stock feature in hagiography. I mean, not all saints' lives, but um, it certainly seems to be. Uh, and, a, and an example is Mother, Mother Teresa. Right? And the cause for her canonization is, is going forward, um, as you might expect, at a fast clip. Um, her po the postulator for her cause saw fit to publish on the internet extracts from her diary in which she talks about feeling absolutely no sense of the presence of Christ. Christ who appeared to her on a train, you know, saying, uh, you've got to uh, do all this for my little ones in India. You know, she has these full-blown, you know, visions and locutions, just like a, you know, a medieval saint's life. But then she, after she sets everything up and, and gets on her path, nothing, darkness. Uh, you know, for much less, much longer for her than it did for Therese, because she lived much longer. Um, and I thought, well, if, if, if it were something embarrassing, if it counted against her, her uh, credentials for being canonized, the last thing that the postulator would do is put it on Zenith, have it up on the internet for people to read. But, but I think it's there because, in fact, many people feel that it is a sign of, of her holiness, of her sacrificial disposition and of uh, something wonderful that God was going to do with her in that suffering. It, 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 it raises the question, when is enough enough? I mean, that is to say, um, if, if, if in a sense there's a condition that you have to meet, the condition being to suffer or to be abandoned, when is enough enough? I mean... Um, and to which there's no answer because uh, 20 years strikes me as a long time. <laughs> and uh, uh, so, so I say there's no answer to the question. C Carol, using the term stock, also suggests that there's a literary structure here. That is to say, the narratives, which are usually written by or controlled by the faithful, uh, this, this, the darkness has to be succeeded, whether it's 20 years later or or not. There's there there has to come. It's like a melodrama. There's the middle stage of the when when the villain is succeeding, and then the final stage when the villain is defeated. And so there's a narrative structure here too, which then poses once again the question of the relationship between the formula or the frame and the individual experience. And of course, in a way, that's solved by saying the two conform, uh, but, but it isn't solved also by, by saying, saying that. I'm sorry, you probably didn't hear me, did you? Because I wasn't speaking at the mic. Yeah. Well, it, it's, uh, it's not clear from, um, from Therese's uh, biography whether, whether it was uh, succeeded by some breakthrough to a sense of God's presence um, before she died. 
uh, that's not at all clear. Um, there, there is, I mean, um, another aspect of this from the inside, but since, since uh, most of us probably aren't insiders, it's hard to talk about it. Uh, and s- s- since the experience itself is somewhat ineffable, it's, it's, it's triply hard to talk about. But part of what comes out of John of the Cross, and particularly Carmelite spirituality, um, is the sense that the, the dark night, um, while, while there's suffering involved, um, there's also a certain, um, a certain um, paradoxical sense that the, that the darkness is light and the void is full. And the language of mystical experience, you know, is is very poetic because it's filled with these kind of paradoxes. So that um, it's it's not as as if the the darkness is is a despair. Um, it could it could lead to that. It could verge on that. But that there is because, precisely because of the narrative a sense that that um, the period of of purgation is uh, involved. Involves not simply a purgation, <clears throat> but a recognition that that God is is in in our experience um, is a light that blinds us, so that the experience of God is darkness and is a, a void, a sense of emptiness that is, that is totally full. So it's it's a much more complex process than than you know than clinical depression or something like that. Sometimes you just wish you could just give them a pill. <laughs> yes. Uh, the panel might address the, the whole question of prayer into social manifestation. For example, in coming before we came down here, there were students outside, and they went out and they were protesting. And the notion of lamentations, like in the Old Testament, where it's not just an individual thing, but it becomes sort of a collective maybe even nation-state um, problem in which there's a spiritual crisis and the people are crying out to God and it's not just personal crime but it starts to take a, a, a more uh, collective expression. I'm thinking about um, protest and how the Reformation came as a result of personal struggle which then manifests itself in huge social movements and then, of course, Vietnam, the Kennedys, Martin Luther King, in which the cries of the people became so severe that it manifested itself in neo-evangelical like, protests. I could start with just saying that's what the Mass is, the universal prayer of the Church, is the collectivity crying out and in concert and Kyrie eleison and Lamb of God and the hosts, you know, again, all the Bach and Mozarts and Brahms um, masses truly is an expression of that in the classic sense. And whatever they're protesting outside right now is the same cry of the heart. Um, and it is prayer. It is lifting up our hearts and minds to prayer. And there is a collective uh, consciousness that it also comes from the deepest part of our soul. I do like the Neoplatonic image of a soul, that the Holy Spirit is the soul of our soul, and it, it cries, cries out periodically with great uh, beauty and, um, 
exquisite painfulness. Uh, there, there, uh, as uh, uh, Professor Zaleski has mentioned, is there's a prophetic tradition um, within uh, a number of, of religions um, in terms of uh, of protest, um, the protest against um, religious observance that disguises the fact that the poor and the widows and the orphans are being mistreated. Um, you know the the famous cry that Martin Luther King kept citing in his speeches and sermons, the translation of which he gets from Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel, rather than directly from the text of Isaiah, which is you know let or Amos rather, uh, let justice roll down like the waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. Uh, so that that tradition is a, is a constant one um, that comes down. I I do a course on uh, called religious radicals, prophetic voices in 20th century America, and we look at figures um, going back to um, A. J. Musty, Dorothy Day, um, names that may not be that familiar to to everyone, but are certainly significant figures in the history of religious protest in this country. Um, Cesar Chavez, Martin Luther King Jr., um, Howard Thurman, um, um, who am I forgetting? Um, uh, se- several others, and um, that that tradition has not has not died. There there are other voices of of religious protest, of protesting for social justice for religious reasons um, that. Um, uh, still exist within within the country, and it's it's a tradition worth studying and worth uh, worth preserving. So, um, and it's not new; it goes back. I mean, you can look at sermons of John Chrysostom, where he talks about the liturgy after the liturgy, mm. and he talks about if you want to if you want to see where the altar of Christ is, look at the at the body of your brother lying in the street and in the gutter. So, the Mother Teresa's language of the of the uh, poor as the distressing of Christ as as being living in the distressing disguise of the poor goes all the way back to patristic period. Um, Saint Basil gives an amazing set of ser- of, of sermons um, in the fourth century, uh, attacking people for having more possessions than they need because the extra pair of shoes in your closet are robbed from the poor who are going shoeless. This is a very old tradition and it's got a steady a steady history throughout. Uh, the history of Christianity. I just that, isn't it ironic then that we we can have these? We're comfortable with uh, protest groups, and not with public prayer. And over, you know, I mean, yesterday we had the, a wonderful uh, visit from from the your friend, the Dalai mm-hmm. Lama, came to Smith College. It was fantastic. Uh, prayer flags all over the campus. Mm. And uh, the only thing like that that's usually all, that's, that's ever all over the campus like this are t-shirts in which people talk about their childhood sexual abuse traumas. So this was a very different feel. The things hanging around the campus that were colorful and when you went to look at them had the eight auspicious signs on them instead of people's records of their childhood um, traumas. Um, Big archways and I mean the the whole campus became a prayer Um, but you could never get away with that for Christianity. I mean, you just couldn't do it. So, but if you really opened up the field and you say, you know, protest, I mean, we're in a religiously diverse world and, the, you know, 
let it all spill out and, uh, and not just keep it in the closet would be uh, perhaps a healthy thing, though not certainly always um, comfortable. One quick addition, uh, uh, this is in light of uh, Professor Hall's comment about religious primitivism going, going back to earlier days. Uh, Peter Brown wrote a book uh, several years ago uh, about poverty in late antiquity and, and coming to the conclusion that it was actually Jews and Christians uh, vying with each other who created the, the category of the poor in the late, anti- late antique world. It didn't really exist as a social, social category for social service. And um, one of the favorite quotes in, in my book is when um, the, the Julian, the last pagan emperor, is complaining. He writes a letter to a, to a pagan priest and says, look, you guys have to get on the ball. The Jews and the Galileans are supporting the widows and the orphans and, and their own and our own, and we're not doing uh, anything. And then my other favorite quote from the book is that one of the titles of the of the bishops, and you probably appreciate this, Fred, uh, was uh, the most one of the most important titles of the early bishops were that they were lovers of the poor. Marie. No, it's not. It's not a question that we've come to any answers on it. Uh, in in a sense, what's happened this year is that we've kind of bookended the year by starting with a symposium on neuroscience and religion and ending with this one. But we have heard a lot about thought and thoughts and the mind and clearing the mind or thinking through things. So I would be curious not uh, to put any of you on the spot to address cognitive science or neuroscience, whatever that is, but just your your general thoughts. You know, I would speak to that because um, I have had the privilege of being with His Holiness, and I was jealous of the training those monks and nuns got uh, compared to the training I got at Catholic University. And um, so I went back to late antiquity um, to find Evagrius and Cassian, and we really do have in the Christian tradition some very insightful and at least parallel 
uh, teachings along with that cognitive. I listened very attentively to the, you know, I don't know if it's the most recent, but the Destructive Emotion Seminar that was in Boston. And uh, the Christian representative was not accurate in what I had read and teach myself about thoughts that come from the earliest monastic tradition where they um, watch their thoughts and, you know, guarded the heart watchfulness of thoughts and the anatomy of a thought and see thoughts rising and observe them and then redirect those thoughts at God's exegesis, you know, the earliest form of discretion, diacresis. Mm. So, I mean, we have wonderful teachings. I would uh, uh, point out a book called um, um, Spiritual Direction in Christian East by Arne Hoshar. It's one of those Cistercian Studies books that gives this earliest training in spiritual direction, which is to train the thoughts away from self, away from evil, toward God, and then the impulses of the Holy Spirit, and how what uh, is in the way, and how to uh, redirect those thoughts, and then to replace those thoughts with prayer, which again, Evagrius, and then Cash, and then Benedict built upon. So it's really full circle. Um, Spiritual Direction in Christian East by Irene Hoshar, but if you want to go back to Evagrius, um, you know, um, you know, his books, uh, Practicos, uh, Cashin, the Institutes and the Conferences, uh, a good book that has good footnotes that has all this in it fairly well is uh, Thomas Merton's teachings on Cashin, that's liturgical press, and it's, uh, it's called The Transmission of Cashin by Thomas uh, Merton. This is sort of a best kept secret in a way of Christianity, but probably of, I think of all fully developed religious traditions that they have methods of discernment, which are the one thing we miss when we think, you know, we're evaluating the validity of certain experiences and it's, we, have an, we have an on-off switch about that validity, but we don't have, unless I think, unless you connect to a, a tradition that's really been working on this, is a way of realizing that, yes, it's quite possible to have hallucinations. In fact, most of the time, <laughs> exotic religious experiences have at least an element of that, and there are naturalistic explanations for what's going on, and neuroscience can shed a lot of light on that. Um, but you don't have to just choose between skepticism and credulity. There's this third path which um, the arts of discernment are all about, and which I think have a lot to do with what Sister Meg was talking about, um, attention, which is something that the, the cognitive sciences spent a lot of time on, attention and human performance, or, you know, as a whole field of study, um, how, how people direct their attention, how it can be narrowed or widened, um, how, what is it that optimizes the ability to pay attention. Uh, these are all um, things that uh, connect for in really, you know, I think in really interesting ways to contemplative and practice um, to meditation. And, uh, and also you were talking about that in terms of the, the philokalia is full of this idea of uh, purification of the attention and attention as this, the, just the, the, your mind's gaze has this tremendous uh, power. To it. Uh, Sister uh, Meg has been uh, too modest, her own, her own work uh, also, um, Thoughts Matter particularly. Uh, which really goes back and looks at uh, Cashin and those monks that he interviewed in the in the deserts. Um, uh, how it creates a consistent 
uh, view of the way in which the the body, the psychosomatic un- unit, unity of the body and soul works, and uh, moves through how you know what you eat, particular diets that you have will affect the passions, will affect your ability to pray, will affect the clarity of your mind. Uh, so there's really there really is a lot there that goes that goes back uh, to fairly early days. Uh, what's being done currently in this area, I just simply don't know in terms of, uh, of neuroscience and um, religious disciplines, um, the whole realm of, of, a, of the ascetic um, you know, struggle. I mean, you've done work, Marie, in terms of concepts of the body and diet, um, but in terms of, yeah, not in this, in this area, and I, I just don't know, know what's being done, if anything is. So I think one of the things that there's been historically is a shift in, in the study of uh, meditative practices toward treating it as an internal psychological state. Even in Buddhist, in Buddhist terms, um, in the pre-modern period, how you knew whether your, the person was meditating right was whether there were miraculous manifestations around them. The idea that the goal of meditation is psychological transformation is fairly modern. So I mean, it had that role in Buddhism, but not as its central method of measurement. So I think the fact that this conversation about prayer has turned into a conversation about meditation and about psychological devices is evidence for a modernist turn in the way that we're understanding what it means for prayer to be effective. And I wanted to take this to David Hall and see if in his discussion, uh, in his study of the prayer gauge controversy, he sees a similar series of moves which change the criterion of measurement from prayer or debate about whether the best way to measure it is how it functions in the world, or whether the best way to measure it is how it transforms us psychologically, or whether the best, I mean, there are many ways that we could think of measuring whether you're authentically doing prayer or not. And I can imagine not knowing as much about um, the Purgish controversy itself, but I wonder whether you can see some of those themes uh, in that debate. I should have mentioned the Purgish controversy. <laughs> 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 um, but I would say the answer without without rehearsing the history of the Purgate country and not without ever going back to those materials and asking this very question because it was, uh, I think most studies of it, uh, if you look at the Christian apologetic side, which is really the side that you're asking about because Tyndall's was a fairly cut and dried side, uh, I don't think anyone has read those materials with that particular question in mind. But the answer, broadly speaking, just speaking as a historian in the most grossly general way, has to be yes. That is the... uh, yeah, there's a zillion a zillion studies that suggest that the self fulfillment theme, as it's as it's voiced in American culture, or or other cultures, other Christian cultures, uh, is a, is a uh, is a shift from uh, from something else. <laughs> I mean, the there. I just I just was looking. Uh, uh, I, I just was looking in another context at. Um, uh, some great executives talking. Oh no, I don't know who it was. It was Edward Filene, the great marketing guru of the 1930s, saying that thank God we've gone from a culture of scarcity to a culture of abundance, because now we can. Uh, the whole problem is to teach people how to buy more. And I mean, the problem we're solving the problem: how to teach people how to buy more. When it used to be, we had to save money in order so that the whole country could flourish. So that there is something there that, that that's changed. And Bob, with those uh, after heaven, talks about that in certain ways. Uh, the culture, the religion industry that you talk about, and so forth and so on, and the, and and then the there's a model of the, of the self as becoming pluralistic in a cap in a consumption society, right? And 
and then what part of that are you fulfilling and what parts of it. And that's the vocabulary of that. There's actually a prayer vocabulary about that. Of course, there is evolved, but it's different from the vocabulary that you're using. Am I right? You would say so. I think so, yes. <laughs> uh, or uh, Sister Meg would say so, too. So, yes, one could trace that history. I can't do it more. I just want to go back to this question in the back about uh, about uh, protest and, and, and prophecy. And another... <laughs> You know, another dark issue is the relationship between prayer and, and political entities. Let's just say, take the nation, for example. I mean, in the uh, in Episcopal churches today in America, there are still prayers for the leader of the country. And this descends, of course, from the fact that it was the state church, and so you had to pray for the king or the queen. And uh, since I attended Episcopal church, I proposed to my vestry that we stop doing this. And then people said, well, Bush needs our prayer. But as a fundamentally a disestablishment or an anti-establishment person, I would prefer that we didn't pray for leaders. But there's – so you're the no, there, again, there's this um, horrible tension between the prophet who is, who is condemning the nation and the fact that – I'll give you an example. When uh, the president before Theodore – who did Theodore Roosevelt succeed when the guy died? Uh, McKinley. There was actually a national day of prayer or national prayer organized for McKinley, concerted yeah. prayers in all the churches. And the notion that the more the it was, a, it was a quantitative thing, plus the nation was being invoked and uh, grew out of a perfectly straightforward piety of the time where the equation between nation, church, individual, president, symbol of the nation was, was no, one, no one thought about questioning that at all. I don't think there was such a thing for Lincoln, perhaps because he wasn't a churchgoer. Maybe people knew that. Um, so, so th- this is a very, very complicated question that would take us to a very different direction, namely the politics of prayer and what we would accept. And that goes back to the question, what is good religion? My own good religion would say religion should never be equated with a nation. But you know, you know perfectly well that, uh, that that's something that many, many, many other people would dispute and fiercely dispute. And it goes back to the school prayer decision, which is why the effort was to divorce the practice of prayer from the sense of nation. My, my fourth grade classroom in Virginia had a portrait of a picture reproduction of George Washington kneeling at Valley Forge. Mm-hmm. Now, he, he was kneeling in prayer, presumably. He probably never knelt in prayer at Valley Forge. But that was the whole point of our class was to uh, this iconic figure of the president praying. He was his, the pious president praying. And no one thought anything. I mean, we all thought this was fabulous to have a portrait of the president praying in our classroom. So nation, president, prayer, all these were conflated in my fourth grade imagination. Uh, as I say, m- m- your notion of prophet would, would work against that, I think, and strongly work against that, I suspect, right? Yeah. It's Time for one or two more. I just, I just oh, sorry, go ahead. To that. Sir Francis Galton did a, a prayer gauge study around the same time after he finished his beauty map of the British Isles and decided there were more beautiful women in London than in Liverpool. He did a prayer study. This is one of the early, you know, efficacy of prayer studies in which he decided that since most people are praying for the royal family, for their health and well-being, um, if you uh, could could show that the royal family was healthier than the rest (laughs) of the population, you'd prove the efficacy of prayer. Well, it turns out the royal family is less healthy than the rest of (laughs) The rest of the nation, so um, healthier than they would have been. <laughs> <laughs> so how do you 
How do you measure and what are you looking for? What if the efficacy of prayer had to do with your benefits that are going to be transferred to the holy souls in purgatory? How do you measure that? Question way in the back. Yes, sir. Nonviolent civil disobedience. Let me direct it to the 19th century and say that if you look at Toussaint Lavatour, Nat Turner, John Brown, or the 20th century to uh, liberation theology, there is another side to the coin which is active resistance by the religious community that incorporates violence. I mean, in Toussaint Lavatour, every battle that he won, he then offered up a mass in thanksgiving for that. Mac Turner's writings, alleged writings, seem to have all been biblical implications, mm -hmm. saying what John Brown felt that he was on a religious mission. And we're now living in an age in which religious belief and violence has become paramount. And so I'd like to hear the panel, if they could, talk a little bit about the role of active resistance for social movements and religion. Yeah, since uh, Jerry, since you addressed uh, that to me, um, I would, um, in my own uh, evaluation of who is a religious radical, um, have difficulties with some of the figures that you mentioned. Because my definition includes, rightly or wrongly, uh, a sense of nonviolent disobedience that violence by the lights of these prophetic voices uh, is inherently out of bounds. Now, I realize that that's problematic, um, but that's, that's the, the, uh, the d definition that I've created for what a religious radical is in terms of, of uh, this particular strand of relating uh, religion and um, social action, that it purposely excludes um, a figure like John Brown, uh, would include you know, some, some other figures uh, from the 19th century uh, who were nonviolent, in some cases uh, radically oppositional. Um, it, it's always amazing to my students when we go back and read some um, figures like, um, like Thoreau to find out that Thoreau was not nonviolent. You know, that Thoreau had some very pleasant things to say about John Brown. Um, but it, in my own definition, I'd say that once you step beyond the line to, into violence, then, then you've, you've broken what I see as, um, as uh, this religious radical tradition. You've broken from it. Uh, and are a test case of it in, in some cases. Though other people may have, uh, have other opinions about that. I would speak to it by saying... Um uh, we have to transcend oppositional views and learn how to dialogue. And uh, even resistance, even nonviolent resistance causes violence. So we've got to come up. I have an article called, What Would Merton Do Today? And it came out of a discussion at Thanksgiving table with my family. Three of my siblings voted for Bush. Three of us didn't. Uh, but anyway, we have to reduce our own afflictions our own um, tendencies to anger, depression, greed, hostility, pride, vainglory, the eight afflictions. And then we have to 
discern what rises in our hearts as to what to say, when to say, who to say, how to say it, from the, in my tradition, be from the Holy Spirit, and then act sometimes symbolically, sometimes refrain from acting. We've got to get a middle term in here to, to go towards God rather than reaction, reaction. And, and only through God's grace can we um, discipline ourselves to hear what the right action would be and to transcend oppositional dialogue and to get to this reflective dialogue where we see the common sense. This will have to be the last question. Yeah, Tessa. Well, I'll rush in, or fool's fear to tread, um, or wise fear to tread. Um, I was thinking when, um, when uh, Professor Zaleski was speaking about religion and magic and sacrifice, um, about um, an article that appeared a number of years ago in a journal called Africa, by a cultural anthropologist named Robin Horton, a British cultural anthropologist. And it's called Traditional African Religion and Western Science. And what he suggests is that there's a lot more similarity between traditional African religion and Western science than might appear, because both are based upon uh, a deep human need, and that's the need to um, predict, to explain, and to control and that uh, there are different mediums or different languages, if you want, different grammars on how to deal or answer with this need for prediction, um, explanation, and control. Uh, Some of those are done in personal terms. That tends to be the forte of traditional religions, um, that ills befall us because the gods are angry or the ancestors are angry, and that we deal with that, therefore, in personal terms, in terms of, uh, of, of relationships with them through sacrifice and other means. Um, Western traditional, uh, Western science, modern Western science, tends to address these same issues in impersonal terms. And when you read the article, um, you come out, at least, with, <laughs> at least Horton seems to come out the other side, with a preference for the personal dimensions of the traditional uh, African way of dealing with these precisely because of their, of their interpersonality rather than the impersonal aspects of, of Western science. Now, that's a very broad background for, for I think, your, your question, but it might be helpful um, to, to read that, that article. And, uh, indeed, I think um, the issue of, of yearning um, uh, is very much at the heart of prayer 
Uh, let me say just one last quick thing. There's a very, very early version, again, going this, the, the primitive strand seems to be strong uh, with me today, going back to the, the early church in terms of how does one understand other people's religions, magics or superstitions. And if you, uh, what the text that usually is picked up on by some of these early people trying to, Christians trying to talk about other religions, is Paul's uh, speech on the Areopagus. You know, this, this statue to the unknown God, that's, that's the God that we worship. Um, and the way in which that gets translated in, in the patristic period is to talk about logoi spermatikoi. That is, that, that the logos, the, 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 um, the presence of God, has been scattered throughout humankind, throughout uh, uh, many cultures. And, um, and sometimes it's obscured, sometimes it's clearer. There's, there's been a natural revelation of God. And that one of the ways of thinking about other religions is, is not simply as demonic forces, but as containing within them logoi spermatikoi that, that have to be identified and valued and, and treasured. Uh, this is the unknown God that, you know, that, that we worship. So there's, there's, there's a sense of a kind of a continuity rather than just a radical discontinuity and radical condemnation of Christianity, of other religions as, as demonic or, or as evil. Um, and that, again, comes down in many strands uh, throughout uh, missiology and the ways of looking at, at, uh, at other world religions. Before we conclude, I want conclude. I want to mention uh, two people in addition to our panel who have done an awful lot of work to put this together: Rebecca, Rebecca Massingill back in the back, and Dave Michelson. And let's thank our panel as well. Thank you all. Thank you for coming.